I'm sure you guys have seen it within your, your volume and you know parts and the column. Our customer type has changed a little bit. I used to hear the guy with the the $500 beater blazer. It's like, man, I have a hard time spending a thousand dollars on the transfer case in this thing for a $500 blazer. And you know, geez, now you know, when guys are throwing ten thousand dollars at paint jobs on a something that's in good shape, you know, it's uh, throwing. You know, a good suspension under a truck and a nice drivetrain package and a you know a good engine and it it's just part of the deal. It kind of all goes together and, and it's actually worth something when you're done. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. A perfectly balanced vehicle is like a high-performing body. If everything falls into place, there's no telling what it can achieve. And that's exactly why our obsession with performance transcends from the bio world and crosses over into the auto realm. Seamless and effortless is both the product of good athleticism and a beautifully tuned engine. Here it is, episode 646. So for those of you guys that are just tuning in, uh, we have my good friend, Stephen, Stephen or Stephen? Stephen. Stephen Watson, even though it's spelled Stephen, but Stephen Watson from Off-Road Design. So for those of you guys that are not into 70s and 80s piece of crap Chevy pickups, primarily square bodies and OBSs. Uh, Steven's company off-road design is pretty much the hallmark builder for everything that looks like suspension, motor, transmission, uh, every, all the hard to find parts. If you want to put a 29 spline output in a 205 to get it into an Allison transmission, all the weird stuff that goes with these trucks that only, um, you know, maybe a select few thousand people in the world are super into, uh, but his company makes them and, uh, we've been a client and, um, been buying parts for him from over 10 years. So great to get you on the podcast we've you know created a friendship through social media and the podcast and then also uh off-road design is our partner on the wade's army giveaway truck that we're hopefully launching here pretty shortly right yeah that's been pretty fun i i I guess i stumbled on i think you started buying parts before i put all the pieces together and then i think i heard you on another podcast maybe it was mark divine's deal you know something it's like wait a minute that name sounds familiar and I went back, oh, yeah, he's buying parts. And I started looking up. I was like, well, that's a really cool truck. You know, and I think it was your uh, your fall guy truck. Yep. On the, the three-inch coilovers. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, we've been uh, building a, a friendship without meeting from there. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's been extremely impactful. And I think what's hilarious is you guys were into these trucks kind of like we were a long time ago when you could pick them up for $500, rip them apart and do all this stuff. And then all of a sudden like this market's shifted and now trucks that I would have parted out long ago, people are trying to sell for ungodly amount of money. And on occasion I'll see people post stuff and I'm like, dude, I've scrapped trucks that were nicer than this. And it, yeah, uh, dude. it blows my mind, but I'm also glad the fact that I know you're a, a hoarder as well. Like me, uh, we have so many projects and so much stuff that like, uh, you know, we've been building this 74 and we pretty much have our parts suburban right next to it and have just been ripping parts, you know, so we don't have to go and buy anything. And it's like, we'll scavenge everything we need off of this herb. Well, we've kept a personal junkyard over the years. Well, for probably 30 plus years now, just for that, I need a piece of wire that actually matches this harness, or I need some little part, or I want the bolt that actually fits in this. And, you know, is the right thing. You, you go out to the, the scrap suburban and pick up your thing. So it works out pretty good, but yeah, we, we could probably, outfit a solid 25 or 30 people right now with project vehicles so the world will be okay probably between two of us 
for quite a while. Yeah, no, we're, we're doing fine. Uh, so like, I mean, I, I know your dad was into this and you were into it. And I think, didn't you tell me your dad had like a scrapyard and that's kind of how you got into this. But like, I mean, talk about being forward facing in the market years before it ended up, you know, shining on because for so long, like really the square bodies in these trucks were uh, kind of builder trucks and off-road and this like market was so specific. And then it just sound, felt like within the last four or five years, uh, it's exploded. And I'm sure you guys have seen it within your, your volume and, you know, parts and the column. Yeah. Our, our customer type has changed a little bit. So I, you know, I sold my very first part on the trail at the Easter Jeep Safari up on the top of the gold bar rim trail. So, I mean, our, our very roots are in figuring out, I started going on long camping trips in my blazer and which my parents had bought a blazer and sold that blazer, got the second one that I still have. And I just started using it and finding out what didn't work. So, you know, our roots are very much off-road and trail oriented, but then, you know, over the years, you talk about the $500 trucks and, and that was, you wheeled a, a beater blazer, you know, a beater K20, you know, they were, they were super solid because of the parts collection that they just came with. And yeah, the last, at, for sure, five, close to 10 years since resto mods started happening, it's, it is a different market and there's, there's still guys using them off-road. It's kind of fallen under the, uh, the overlanding theme a little now, which we joke about because Chevy truck guys just go camping, but that's, uh, that's more the off-road use guys aren't building them to, to rub on rocks and trees like they used to and it it works out good for us because the i used to hear the guy with the the 500 beater blazer it's like man i have a hard time spending a thousand dollars on the transfer case in this thing for a 500 blazer and you know geez now you know when guys are throwing ten thousand dollars at paint jobs on a something that's in good shape you know it's uh throwing you know a good suspension under a truck and a nice drivetrain package and a you know a good engine and it it's just part of the deal it kind of all goes together and, and it's actually worth something when you're done sure oh yeah no i'm i'm uh i'm dude i've done it numerous times we're actually in the process of doing it now uh you know trying to fit you know motors that weren't designed to fit in things and you know you're always going through this engineering piece and uh it's definitely forced me into one uh becoming a much better welder um, I was an awful welder when I started, as Chris knows, uh, which made me a really good grinder. I got to the point where I was like the Michelangelo with a, you know, with a, uh, flat uh, disc. <laughs> yeah, like with a, you know, grinding wheel, you have flap disc and, um, you know, and then you get to the point where it just, you know, you do it so much and, you know, then you start figuring out that if I clean the metal, the welds will come out nicer and, you know, and then obviously you get to the point where you want to actually present it. I mean, um, I have a buddy who's building a truck actually in Colorado right now. Um, you know, there, he uh, picked up a. 70s crew cab, uh, Dynatrack axles. Um, they're building a compound turbo, uh, Duramax, thousand horsepower, trying to hook it up to an Allison, to a Magnavox. I mean, he's going through all this stuff and I uh, was bitching about the amount of time. And I was like, dude, we started tracking the time on the crawler I'm building and I'm somewhere over just probably 300 hours of welding alone and fabrication. Yeah, I mean, we've never kept track of the time. Well, we, we just kind of like went through. And just kind of like, okay, hey, we did this chunk and this chunk. And after like two years, we almost like, I almost threw up. And I'm like, oh, God. like I mean, uh, DJ who works for me, he worked for Joe Martin uh, on Iron Resurrection. Um, mm -hmm. So when we moved to Cal, when we moved from California, I brought DJ with me, worked at the other shop, and then he worked for Joe for a couple of years. And uh, so, I mean, he's got a pretty good understanding of like, you know, what this stuff, he's like, we couldn't have won, like, 
we, this would have taken us two years at that shop and this would be a $300,000 build if you were to go in and pay somebody a hundred, $150 an hour to build this stuff, which is what, you know, these guys are getting for this race car stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and that's when you start throwing intricate details into things, it, it gets pretty hard to, to put time and, and a, any kind of a value on that. You know, stuff we've looked at with uh, our cousin Willard uh, crew cab truck. Yeah, well, all of them really, but I mean, that one has just a bunch of intricate details and all kinds of little cool stuff that, you know, my dad pretty much was the ramrod on, on all of our truck projects so far and just comes up with stuff and you can't, you can't buy that, you know, it's stuff people have to do and, and a lot of it, you just have to do yourself. And it's, uh, it's hard for people without fabrication skills to, to be part of that. So that is something that I think it pushes people a little bit to, to at least learn how to do some things. And it's something I see, you know, guys experiment with, I just want to cut out this floorboard and do something different. I thought it'd be cool to have a toolbox in here. And, you know, they're not structurally welding things together, but they're figuring out how to put some sheet metal together and, and make a cool thing for themselves. So that is something that kind of flows out of that. Is, uh, is one of that limitations, I know we've discussed it, is that like, uh, it feels like uh, welding is really like the hurdle. Um, like, you know, obviously bending tubes, spinning sheet metal and being able to weld. Um, you know, I mean, because dude, I mean, I, I still, even though I have friends that are wizards on solid works and all this, I mean, we still do CAD with, which I call cardboard, cardboard. Uh, activated <laughs> designs where we're cutting things out of cardboard, making templates and doing that. And you cut it out and you weld it up. But, uh, I mean, that feels like, um, you know, like such a huge hurdle. Like, uh, the other day I sold, I, I had a couple sets of CUCB axles. And so I, I flipped a set to a dude. And, um, you know, the biggest question is, is like, you know, how do I cut off these perches? How do I get these rewelded? I'm like, you got a, you got a plasma, you got a grinder. Do you know somebody that welds? And that always becomes this like hurdle. And uh, people always ask me, where do you start? I'm like, go get a welder and a grinder and suck for a really long time until you get to the point where you just stop sucking. And I don't know when that's going to come. Right. Yeah. But it is one of those things. It, and the welding is a hurdle there and there's different levels of, of hurdles in that because a, a guy that can weld can't necessarily design. And that's like with our coilover kits, we've, we've built that for somebody that can weld stuff and is a decent fabricator, but doesn't have the next step, which is actually designing the suspension and, and setting things up on the vehicle. And so that's, that's a different level, but yeah, just, just getting to where you can weld spring perches on is, is one start or, you know, patch up the frame behind a steering box. You know, those kind of things are, are relatively basic welding projects that really have to happen on most of these trucks. Um, and then the next step is, is designing something and then especially something that moves like a suspension. Um, roll cage stuff, a lot of guys do pretty good at. That's a, that's a little farther down the ladder. But yeah, each one of these steps is a, is a step on the ladder of, of building things. And that's where we try to, we try to hit all of them. And well, the, the 74 Blazer is a really good example of something that has a huge amount of value to it because the, the performance curve and the value curve you know, kind of come together magically there because you can bolt that stuff on in the driveway. Yeah. No, I mean, so, uh, uh, we, 
So, uh, yeah. you guys, uh, I'll, I'll explain to the audience. Um, you know, we're doing a giveaway truck for Wade's Army sweepstakes. Yeah, sweepstakes. I'm sorry. Yeah. So we're doing. Uh, we're selling raffle tickets, um, and we're going to do a drawing for this '74 Blazer. So we had been on the hunt for one because I wanted to do a full convertible Blazer that they only the square body really was in '73, '74, and '75. And for some reason, they went from being these like, I mean, I used to see them like stepping over them in junkyards to the point where people were like thinking these things were like, uh, you know, like priceless. So we ended up coming across one that was up in Austin in a guy's garage. Uh, the guy put it up on jack stands, um, had visions of grandeur of doing a coilover suspension. And this would have been like probably 15 years ago, which even blows my mind even more because I don't even know if I was thinking about coilovers 15 years ago. Um, Sold the axle suspension wheels, put it on jack stands, and it sat there from 05, 06 until we brought axles over, got it out, wheeled it out. And then we uh, took it down pretty much to bare metal, painted it, have done everything. I mean, it's been probably almost six weeks, eight weeks. We've been grinding on this thing every single day. And uh, it's got to go over and get wrapped and get all the sponsor stuff today. And then we got to bring back. I still got to do exhaust and a few other things. But, uh, you know, did like the top redone. It's going to be insane. And, um, you know, it's basically set up with, uh, your guys Alcan suspension, which is on leaf springs, which to me ride as good as, uh, I mean, I, I hate to say it, like the coilovers ride good, but the Alcans ran right. Excellent too. Yeah. Well, and clarification there. So spring wise, I actually, I designed those and we, uh, funny Alcan's been around for decades. Like we had, we had them do spring work on my 82 blazer when I was a kid, but it was, it was always really stiff. And that's one of the things I thought I, I went on a camping trip out in Canyonlands when I was in college and got passed on the trail by a Jeep YJ, you know, like a stock Jeep YJ. And I'm like, why, why is this happening? This, I got to make this better. And that was kind of the, one of the beginning points on my journey to making things ride better. And I ended up when I got out of school, of course, I'm a mechanical engineer. I can design things. So I bought a spring design manual and came up with a, a set of springs, talked to the guys at Alcan, told them if whether this works or not, it's mine. You know, your your name's not on it. I'm specking everything. You know, we put all this, this stuff together and we put them on my blazer and it worked great. It's like, oh, this is this is something. And and that was kind of the, the beginning of that process. So um, just to differentiate there, Alcan does construction and does a really great job. They, I mean, they, they work everything out of raw steel, um, normalized, non-heat treated. So they actually do the heat treating in-house there in Grand Junction. So they'll heat the spring, fold the eye, do, uh, and we'll kind of explain this because it's what's going in the blazer. So it all keys in, but they've, you know, they heat the, the thing up in an oven blacksmith style stuff roll the eye in it, then they heat it up again and make the, the arch what it's supposed to be. And then they uh, it goes back in an oven and then they heat it up and they quench it in oil, which is the heat treating process. And that's all done in-house over there. And a lot of companies work with preheat treated material and so on, but um, you know they their construction is, is really good. So we've been really happy to partner with them I do the design work on our stuff. They do the construction on it. And we end up with, with what you've ridden around on. And, and to kind of go to your, your point with the ride quality, to really jump in the weeds here. So one of the measures of how soft a vehicle is, is how much wheel travel it has. 
So on that blazer, we're gonna have somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 inches of vertical wheel travel. So that's straight up, straight down. And a coilover kit, I mean, that, that's a relatively long travel suspension in street vehicle world. Um, you know, an aftermarket lifted coil spring Jeep might have 10 inches of wheel travel. Um, the early Ford Raptors, I think, had 10, 11 inches of wheel travel. So that uh, we're, we're talking comparable ride quality with these systems. So the, the ride can get amazingly good with the leaf springs and, and they bolt on. You know, they go into factory mounting points and it's something you, you bolt on in the driveway. So it is a pretty cool system. You don't, you don't get the handling that you get out of a coilover setup. But once again, on the value curve, the ride quality and the fact that the installation is, is essentially, in the grand scheme, basically zero. I mean, it still takes a few hours to do it, but it's not a few days. Yeah, so, or, or a few anyway. months. I mean, uh, or, like, <laughs> I mean, uh, like it took me, I mean, I, I think we had, dude, like to, to be able to link front and rear. But then the problem is when you link the trucks, um, you know, what she's talking about with coilovers, there's so much supporting modification that goes with it. Like you obviously have to build like the top coil mounts and then engine cage up front and then all the supporting pieces, figure out the steering. Because now all of a sudden you basically have put a huge shock and a whole bunch of tubing right in front between the steering box and the steering. So then you got to figure out gym jams. You got to get the thing in there. And then, you know, all the welding, all the fab, uh, then you have to go and measure all the travel, like where's the bumps at the bump stops. So, I mean, there's days and hours of fabrication and testing and going into this. And then you go to the back and now you're building what's called the triangulated four link. Uh, you know, and then I got to the point where I just basically cut the back of my frame off and rebuilt all the back of the frame out of two by four. So I could get more travel because the way the stock frame was set up wasn't allowing me to do travel. Yes. And there's also simpler versions like I had on my K30 that basically you and dj bolted on in an afternoon <laughs> which were the leaf springs yeah and i, I, pulled I think, up the order leaf springs lift block so yep. i think raised four inches and then uh bill stein shock yeah which was, was from yeah yeah from off-road design which is uh the simplest easiest way so it's funny when people hit me up and they're like oh how hard is coilovers and i'm like uh what kind of skills are you working with you know can you bend some tubes what do you want it to look like and so uh being able to you know if people aren't like willing to dive in on that, I'm like, dude, uh, go for, you know, the ORD Alcans. They, they ride great. Um, I, I have them on the back of my K30 truck and, um, like they're 64. So they're obviously much longer, but the amount of flex that I get out of them, I mean, it, uh, it's pretty interesting with the, the front being linked with three O coilovers and then the rear with the 64s. Uh, it's not that much big of a difference. Like, I don't feel like I'm, I'm pretty excited to drive this other crawler where it's gonna be linked front and rear as a comparison. Mm-hmm. Well, just to give you some perspective, a truck with a three-inch coilover in the front and a 64-inch leaf in the back, you take that back to early desert race days when I was just scrounging to find any mention of desert racing in a magazine somewhere. But all those early trucks in the 70s and early 80s had multiple white body crappy shocks set up on quick release systems because guys would come in and, and change those shocks out in a pit and put on a fresh batch and go another 50 miles. And what you've got put together in really in either of these trucks would have smoked Walker Evans in the 1970s. So it's pretty crazy where the, the technology has gone and, and kind of what we accept as being kind of normal everyday stuff. 
Well, the, uh, the technology for us, um, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California, uh, which is really like the heart of desert racing. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, the guy that taught me to weld and, and really fabricate, uh, you know, builds trophy trucks and, you know, the Earps and uh, all these, you know, Camberg. I mean, all of these big time trophy truck shops were all right around the gym in Costa Mesa. Um, uh, God, the, the transmission dude was right across the street from old power athlete. And I can't, uh, Weisman transmission. Uh, was yeah, like, magic. Oh yeah. I mean, they, they, they got banned out of, uh, you know, out of numerous things for building things that were so off the chain. But I mean, we were there one night when, uh, you know, they brought Robbie Gordon's truck in and they were basically doing hot laps up and down the street and this thing doing hundred miles an hour on three wheels and this trophy truck testing his new transmission. So like, I, you know, like this is right near the shop where, where little power athlete was in the shop in Costa Mesa. So, I mean, really growing up in that area, desert racing and, uh, you know, was, I mean, it's really just the the heart of it. So I feel like what's happened is a lot of that trophy truck stuff has bled over now into the off-road market where now it was like, you know, leaf springs, rancho shocks, and, you know, you're good to go. And now all of a sudden, you know, people are running king coilovers and, you know, four-link suspensions and setting this thing up. I mean, you know, the day I go out on the trail and see somebody running trailing arms, you know, now all of a sudden we're going to see something, you know, which I, I haven't necessarily seen a rock crawler with trailing arms, but you see them in the Ultra 4 and the King of Hammers. Oh, Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that's really brought a, King of the Hammers for us was a good opportunity to bring a whole lot of that desert technology more into the, the recreational world and into the rock crawling side. And it, uh, it was probably a more effective bleed into recreational four wheeling than desert racing ever would have been because it, it related more to more of the country because of the rock crawling part. And in our case, I mean, it really launched our suspension stuff because now all of a sudden we're making these trucks actually have to drive nice. You know, when you're driving full hydraulic steering at, I say triple digit speeds, it was it was hard to get there. Um, but high speeds across the desert, you have to have the front suspension geometry right, or or you learn it real quick. And it prompted a bunch of of changes for us and. And started, like you say, taking all that desert stuff. All of a sudden, we're concerned about axle steer and we're concerned about shock geometry and, and shock valving. And we pushed all of that too far and then backed it up for recreational people. And that was uh, that was a pretty huge deal. And, and you talk about rock crawling with trailing arms. That's becoming more and more common these days. You know, lots of guys are playing with that. And it's uh, it is a very broad world right now. As far as off-road stuff goes, there's somebody trying a lot of things, and I, I guess it's been that way for a while. I think back in the early 2000s, and geez, there were guys mounting leaf springs sideways in trucks and doing all kinds of crazier stuff. We've we filtered out a lot of that and are down to a lot of things that work. As we uh, are texturing the last couple of days shows, there's still a, an awful lot of people doing things that don't really work, but not necessarily in the off-road world. Well, what's, um, uh, like on, on social media, which, uh, you know, uh, is kind of a love or hate them, um, on these different, uh, truck sites, like, or tr truck pages, people will post, Hey, I just got done working on this. And you know, some kid or, or fake welding videos. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, we, we have a, a, a guy, a, a friend who was posting some welding stuff and, uh, he was, uh, like it was pretty apparent that he was just basically just fucking struck the MIG and was just holding it up there for the picture, you know, doing it for the gram because uh, one, there was no hand movement. I mean, like 
it, it like he was like behind it was just like one of those things where if you've done a ton of welding it's you're good like, move. Oh, he, i gotta not, practice I, I chris i need to get you up there but uh yeah they uh so this guy posted a, a 72 blazer and uh just to give you an idea how uneducated the market is i'm looking at this thing and the more and more i look the more gross it got uh you know he's got like these little kind of quarter inch you know chinese himes on these you know basically four linked parallel four link suspension uh you know that the top link mounts like one inch from the frame i mean it was just like he ran the exhaust between the top link and the body like it was so bad i sent it to uh to steven and i was like dude is it, this is this is what people are building and more importantly this is what people are being like oh it looks amazing you know you know can i get the number of your fabricator and i'm i'm sitting here throwing up in my mouth and it's not my place to jump in and basically curb stomp the guy's dreams so i just kind of just keep scrolling because i like you know the one thing that i've realized is that if you actually point something out to people that's wrong they fucking bugger down and now you're a hater in this and well, it's like yo it's- man i'm not trying to hate on you I'm just telling you, uh, whatever you did, you need to fire that person and take away his tools. It's the same in the the fitness realm. You see some poor lifts on there, and you want to make a public comment, even even then, like ah, I shouldn't. And then you DM them, hey, coach, look out for this, this, and that, and they're like, they get defensive. So I imagine, oh, it's even same worse. personality traits. Well, uh, much like you could probably do in the strength conditioning world, you could be like, hey, man, why don't you bring your athletes out and we'll see how you do with the truck stuff. I'd be like, I'll pay you a thousand dollars to bring that thing somewhere that's legitimate and like bring it out to Kissimmee Rocks and let me see how you do. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that is the thing. There's there's the throwdown in the off road world and that's it. Really, all you have to do is just go on a trail ride. It doesn't take an awful lot. You don't have to go race it, although that's the the ultimate throwdown that uh, which is super cool the on both the physical side and the vehicle side is you start getting into something the king of the hammer stuff the the baja race stuff the desert uh, u.s desert stuff is um that's that's where you're figuring out what you're made of i remember the first time we went to hammer town or we went so for those you guys who don't know uh google king of hammers and there used to be up in johnson valley there was a chocolate thunder and it's basically like a rock paradise to crawl. And these guys went up and used to just drag their beer can Toyotas all over this place. And they started this race called the King of Hammers. And it kind of started with like just a, a small group of off-roaders that were just trying to do this. And it grew. And I think, I mean, by the time we went in 2014, uh, it was pretty big. And then we went in 15 and it had doubled. And then all of a sudden dudes were showing up in these like million dollar um you know ultra fours that were you know independent front and rear suspension you know i mean just in like things that were able to rock crawl and do 100 miles stacking whoops which at that point you know we'd only seen trophy truck stack whoops like that and uh you know going out there and seeing the tech and where to grow i mean but then the the best part is as soon as it got dark and uh all the where the racing stopped then you get the everyman where people are dragging their trucks and trying to get up these deals and uh i mean we were standing up on the like on these rocks drinking beers and dudes are just literally just grenading their cars and getting towed out i've never in my life seen that type of like drunken mayhem fun like it's not even redneck it's just fucking insanity <laughs> happening like dudes are just, just rev limiter just on the rev pop, 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 boom and uh people cheering like standing around it was it was incredible it's so much fun yeah that's uh that is an event that anybody with any interest at all in the off-road world should go to at least once. Just, just go see the spectacle, see what tens of thousands of people camped in the desert looks like and, and see the vehicles and what they can do. It's yeah. crazy. H- history here. 
first run was in 2007, unofficial, 12 teams. Next year, first official race in 2008, no spectators, but 50 drivers took part. And here we are, 400 teams and 60,000 spectators at Uh. the event. I got to think it's more than that because when because when, when I saw yeah. like uh, they televise it now, I mean, we, we, we moved to Texas in late 16, early 17. So I went last time was in, we went 15, 16. Uh, when I see the pictures now, Hammertown is like seven times bigger than what it used to. Like there's got to be 100,000 people. Yeah. The Google of the Hammertown is pretty epic photos. It, yep. I mean, it's bigger than Burning Man. Yeah. So I've heard. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you got to hold off on that. Apparently Burning, we have... We have people debate that. Apparently, Burning Man is much bigger. I have uh, no idea. is a pretty big deal. <laughs> have you ever been to Burning Man? It, I have not been. Oh. Um, I've got a couple of friend acquaintances that uh, that are pretty big into it and routinely bring up the numbers that Burning Man is much bigger. So, but that, uh, it, it, one of the biggest things that was a, a cool change, it, it was cool to be there and then it's better now that it's changed, but you talk about all that mayhem going on down in the, in these rocky draws when people are, are crawling up and at night, those, the rules that keep people off of the race courses weren't there until oh, 2011 ish, somewhere in there. So the early days we're going up sledgehammer, which is people that you just have to Google this stuff to get a feel for it. You're driving over boulders that are the size of your vehicle it looks and, like something like uh, like if you didn't know it was in California or where it was in the world, you would think it was like the Mars rover. Like it looks like Mars. Like when you go out there and the rocks and this, I mean, it's Johnson Valley, but this like it's I mean, aptly this, named King of Hammers for a reason. This is Mad Max yeah. stuff. It's yeah. pretty awesome. It is well, Mad Maxy, and the and the crowds used to be in the canyons with us. So you know what you saw sitting on the walls at night that used to be what the race was like. And so we'd be bottlenecked down in these canyons when somebody's stuck or broken and, you know, all this mechanical mayhem is going on with the spectators down, like in the canyon with the cars. It, I don't know how more people didn't get hurt, but they, uh, that's where the, the rules came to keep everybody pushed off of the race courses. And it's all pretty tightly controlled now, but being in the middle of that was, was pretty nuts. I uh, would love to heckle. At that moment, some something bad happens. You're two well, feet away. Hey, well, so what's, uh, what's so going on? When it's uh, like, like a bunch of drunk idiots uh, on the rev limit are trying to blow their shit up at night, like people are heckling and throwing beers and this. But the one thing that blew me away was when we were up there and the racers were going up. All of a sudden, the racers were break down, and like dudes are like jumping off to come and help. Like like they're like like it's crazy, and you know this. Like like the pit crew. Mm-hmm is a thousand deep. Like if you needed something like 50 dudes are going to jump off the rocks and go down there and help. And like, I think that's, what's cool about the off-road world is, uh, if you see somebody broken or you see something, it's kind of like, um, you know, one of the monsters of power athlete, if you see a broken down car, what do you do? You get out and you push them to safety. The off-road world's the same way. Like if somebody's broken down, um, I mean, cause I'm sure this has happened to you on more than a few occasions. Like you have some very, very excellent purpose-built rigs um, you know, I mean, uh, the amount of media coverage that your convertible K30 has got, is pretty amazing. Um, you know, I've seen that thing in driveline. I've seen it everywhere, but like, I'm sure you've been out on the trail and you come up on some dude in a stock LJ who's, you know, got, you know, light bars, but no lockers. And he's stuck in a real bad place and you pull up and you're like, shit, man, I'm not going to leave this dude. So you pull him to safety and you help him, and, you know, uh, potentially wrecking his hundred thousand dollar truck. 
that was last weekend. We were up at Flaming Gorge Reservoir and uh, dude comes walking into camp randomly out of the, there's nobody within miles of us on this beach in what's essentially the desert of Wyoming. And dude comes walking up and had a, I think it was a Nissan Xterra and a little teardrop camper and was stuck in, in a muddy spot, you know, several miles up the shore. So we all traipsed up there and very carefully didn't get ourselves bogged down in that hole, pulled him out. And, and he was a new guy, just, I mean, this is the experience you're talking about. New guy had a little bit of an idea what he was doing, had traction boards, didn't have a toe strap. And somebody had actually been along with another vehicle, but didn't have a way to help him. And he ended up walking the several miles down to our place. And, you know, we drove around, pulled him out and, you know, dude tries to pay us. And if it was time for beers, I would have, would have accepted a, a beer and sat there with him for a while, but I told him buy a toe strap and pay it forward. Well, yeah, what was it like 6am? Because, uh, you know, anything after 8am on a vacation <laughs> like that, I mean, if he's got beers, it's 8am, we're drinking. It, them, so. it probably was beer time, but it was also <laughs> a home day for me. So <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, yeah, that is, that is exactly it. And that's, I think because that the off-road world was born out of, of being out in the deserts, being up in the mountains, being out in the backwoods where, geez, you could, well, on that same trip back, I'm driving down the highway and the middle of Northwest Colorado, where there's, there's really nothing for, there, there is a sign out there that says next service is 120 miles. And there's a lady walking down the side of the highway. I'm like, this lady doesn't look like a rancher or a hunter or anything that's purposely doing this. And I picked her up and she was driving a shuttle van and, you know, broken down, gave her a ride around to, to the corner. But that, that's the kind of situation she there was miles to go to get to anywhere. And it was some fishermen down on the river were the closest people. And that's where that attitude I think comes from is, you know, if you don't help somebody out in that situation, they're going to have a real hard day. Well, and um, that's, what's also cool about building these trucks is that, you know, as you're working on them in the shop, you're trying to like, you know, uh, take your experience of like, Hey, uh, I know that, you know, last time I had too much front end travel and there wasn't enough plunge on my drive shaft and I lost my front drive shaft. So you use all your previous experience to try to like build this stuff with uh, fail safes so that you're like, okay, hey, if I do this and this, and this is the thing I've seen. So you kind of put all this stuff together and then you have to basically go out and physically test it in these extreme conditions. And then if it breaks, then you have to, you know, not only have knowledge and tools and the ability to be able to fix on the trail and then go home. So there's like a lot of like forethought experience and then taking it out and actually using it in real ways, which I think is the coolest part. Like, like go out and like, see if you break it, which, uh, you know, Dr. Bueller, who's been on this podcast many times, who does the Amit deal. I remember after he worked with me a ton and everything was feeling great. I'm like, doc, what do I do? He's like, go out and test it, break it and come back and fix it. And I think we've taken the same thing with, uh, you know, like you try to build in as much, uh, as many fail safes, or you go through your experience and you're like, well, oh, that failed last time. Let's not like redo this one. Or if you know something's a fail safe, then you just bring extra like drive shaft or U joints or other pieces. Right. I'll be prepared to fix it on the trail. That's and and then uh, like dependability, like, um, you know, my buddy's talking about building a thousand horsepower Duramax, you know, and I'm thinking like uh, electronically cold, controlled transmission with an Allison, you know, a thousand horsepower in the rocks means, especially in diesel motor means that, uh, you know, when you start going with gear reduction, now all of a sudden you're talking about like hundreds of thousands of pounds of torque in certain things and then you gotta you know now all of a sudden the more horsepower now you're building like you know uh you know cryo 
you know, axle shafts and like, it just, it becomes this like balance of like, okay, how ridiculous do I want to make this? And how much money do I have to spend to fix this? So there's like this interesting balance of like usability. And I'm sure you've seen this. I mean, guys come out with an LS3 with a supercharger on it. They build all this horsepower and fucking shatter these things into a million pieces. And you're like, well, small block probably would have got you farther. Yeah, we, uh, we have like the poster child for that was uh, on one of the blazer bash trips that you still have to make your way up to, um, had guy we called loud Travis show up and had (laughs) (laughs) very aptly named. It sounds sounds good. (laughs) Loud Travis has a, uh, has a K 20 with all of the motor stickers on his fender and a Dana 44. And we ended up essentially pulling a dead vehicle, completely dead vehicle out of a trail that day and night. And the next year, Loud Travis showed up with a, a Dana 60 in the front and with one important sticker that said RCV, which <laughs> built really good, basically real close to the best axle shafts that you can get arguably up there. And now Loud Travis didn't break stuff. But yeah, that was, he was the poster child. All the engine stickers, none of the axle stickers. Well, we're putting a three-quarter ton Dana 44 um, and a 14 bolt, which they run in one ton and three-quarter ton trucks. Um, but we're putting that in this K5. And uh, I hadn't worked on a Dana 44 in so long. I forgot how little it is. Like everything is so little in comparison to the Dana 60. Um, you know, and then we do upgrades and whatnot that uh that's pretty funny. But yeah, no, I've I've seen like we um the first time we went to King of Hammers, uh, I know you've seen that guy's blazer, Moonbender. Uh, yeah. it's that, uh, thing on AMRAPs and he's got like 54 inch tires and he had, uh, yeah, he runs our transfer case. Yeah. Jason he, yeah. He, uh, he had what, like a blown 632 in there with an 871 wheeling supercharger on it, making like, you know, 2000 horsepower. And, uh, as we were rapping with him a little bit about it, he's like, ah, you know, we, uh, we grenaded the two and a half ton, uh, axles. We grenaded the five tons and finally we're on these AMRAPs or, you know, some crazy ass axle he had underneath it. And uh, he puts his kids in the back and basically like with basically n- no seatbelts in the back drinking beers, they went up Chocolate Thunder, which if you guys Google, it's pretty wild. But like the guy had so much horsepower and such big wheels and so much gearing that he was just like burp, 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 to the top. And I'm like, I guess if you're going to build it, man, you got to like, ba- you know, blow up a lot of shit to figure out finally what works. Man, that thing was a monster. I mean, almost to the point where I was like, this thing's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it. Well, it's something we ran into is we we went so far in the crawler world that everything gets too easy. You get to a point where, and the kind of the rock crawling cone dodging world has come around over the last few years. And there's a a lot of hardcore trails, a lot of hardcore stuff's been cut down in Sand Hollow. But it gets to a point where you can build a car that's really only fun to drive in a in a few select places in the country, and. And it's a little discouraging because you go out on the trail, you can still go out and have fun on kind of normal trails, but it isn't, it isn't what the rig was built for because it's built for only the hardest stuff. And that's where you start seeing these regional differences and the the hardcore off-roading world really popped up out of Johnson Valley was one of the focal points because it's such a big area. The place was nearly 200,000 acres to start with. And covered in rocks and sand, and and people just cut trails all over it and gnarly stuff. They're still cutting new trails all over it and ridiculously gnarly stuff. And so that you know started breeding those kind of vehicles coming out of it. 
But it, to your point, you can, well, like Jason Moon, you go down and run trails like Chocolate Thunder, there's, there's nothing there. It's not a challenge. Everything's so big, it rolls over this stuff. And those things are built for uh, ridiculous competition. And they do really good at it. But it isn't, uh, it can't be that much fun to drive in lesser places. Well, I mean, they had an event, the Top Truck Challenge which um, mm-hmm. if you guys have ever read Peterson's four-wheel drive magazine, like every year they had this thing called the top truck challenge where they would bring, uh, they would select people. I mean, I think it was off of submissions from the readers. You'd submit your rig and they yeah. selected people. And it was pretty bitching in the early days because they created all these like crazy ass obstacles. Photos alone or performance? No, it was, it was performance. So you would send in a photo, like, um, you know, mm-hmm. talk about your truck. And then I think the readers would select you, or I, I don't know how the yeah, selection readers, process. Readers actually mailed in to select. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, and they would, and you look at the trucks and this one I like, and this one I want to see. And so, uh, we would get it and then they would take these trucks to someplace and they would set up obstacles and do this and they would run them. And then it got to the point where like, it was, uh, you know, pretty cool trucks that dudes would build in their garage to all of a sudden these like monster trucks where dudes are on like 54 inch tires and this, and they just built these like overpurposed rigs to the point where you're like, uh, this really one these aren't cool um two they just kind of i don't know like they 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 no matter how extreme they were the trucks are more extreme and then they just got rid of it because they were like this this got to the point of just comedy and it was it wasn't fun anymore and they basically canceled this thing which had been i mean for years had been like one of their focal points of this entire magazine was like top truck challenge was this where the gambler comes in where you get 500 buck limit dude this is exactly why the gambler exploded because like find a piece of shit and take it out into the wilderness so explain the gambler for the listener okay so for those of you guys that don't know and uh oddly enough uh i can't remember his name but the dude that started the gambler uh is a power athlete fan i think he follows our training of course i know how how could he not uh but i i posted something with matt vincent and the dude hit me up and he's like dude i love you guys Uh, i'm a former thrower i love your programming and invited this out but we ended up getting screwed on another deal to not make it but we will make it out there but their deal was like Go buy a 500, when you could find $500 project <laughs> pieces of right. crap, like uh, it doesn't exist anymore and just show up. It doesn't matter if it's a minivan, uh, you know, two wheel drive, whatever, and just take it and see how far you can get on. And, uh, that's, and like, they've had these entire gambler, but it's all based around going out and cleaning up the wild- wilderness. So, uh, you know, go out like, uh, the team that wins in the race is the one that collects the most trash. And, um, so it's kind of an eco challenge in that way, but I mean, that's taken big resurgence, but. I mean, that top truck challenge, like I remember opening the magazine for the last one and being like, this is stupid. Like these trucks are dumb. Like, like they're just monster trucks. And And they went so far that they, they just got to the point where it's hard to identify with. And you know, what, what are these axles? Where do you get them? You know, 54 inch tires that I don't even know what the things cost anymore. And the, the engine to drive that, you know, now all of a sudden, if you don't have a thousand horsepower, the, the rig doesn't work. So they, uh, yeah, that, that was extremely specialized and those guys still run. There's a, uh, it's called the mountain havoc series that runs up in Northern Idaho and they still build courses like that and do absolutely ridiculous things with these trucks. And, you know, it's almost like the, the rock bouncer world, they're getting pretty seriously into, into shock technology and shock tuning and, and really making these things work. And, uh, it's, it is cool, but like you say, it's gone so far that it's, fun to watch and hard to identify with. 
So the rock bouncing world is another weird one that usually happens down in the south, like those tr- like those. So what they did is they basically take about uh, about five thousand dollars worth of t- maybe ten thousand dollars worth of tubes now, and they build these like caskets. Is what I like to call them, of tubing <laughs> with a seat in, seat in the middle, and then they hook up like the most horsepower they can figure out in a motor and on monster tires. And then what they do is that they just basically have an on off switch. They put the pedal to the metal and they launch this thing up hills and they have a lot of like slick rock and mud and they just bop, 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 bop. And they try to explode these caskets uphill. And, uh, I like I've seen it and I'm like, I don't even know. Like that's a, a whole different, like the, like the whole mud truck thing too, down here in Texas where these guys, you know, build these, like, you know, they have zero suspension travel. They're just basically like these, uh, subframed, like, uh, rednecks with paychecks. I don't know if you've seen that. Like they, uh, right. build these things with these mud pits and they bring these mud trucks out, which to me, they have like they're engineering abortions. Like they're the most disgusting things I've ever seen when I, when you get up close, cause I've seen them up close and I've been like, dude, uh, one, they need to steal this hillbilly stick welder because this isn't even DOM. These guys are welding like schedule 40, schedule 60 pipe in these trucks. And then just trying to launch yeah, these over uh, Well, and that's a horses for courses thing too, because that stuff pops up out of running around in swamps and running. We, once again, the ultimate adventure, we got to go four wheeling down in Florida and actually ended up out on a, on a, like a 20,000 acre ranch, I guess. I, I don't know if they actually ranched anything, but um, back on some actual back trails that felt like you were cruising through the back country in Florida and routinely driving through four foot mud holes. And, and that's where these vehicles come from. We, we actually worked with uh, a handful of guys early on building these big swamp buggies because they need gear reduction systems in them to be able to slow them down. And they've got giant tires and, you know, they, so our, our transfer case systems worked. And I remember talking to uh, a guy who was a, a lawyer at one point was going out to his hunting lease and you know building his buggy to do this and it's like so you know do you hunt what you know what do you what do you have going out there it's like oh we usually go out and we catch some hogs it's like that doesn't sound like you're killing hogs he goes no most of the time we catch them and the uh all the boars you know especially the young ones they'll they'll castrate them and slit their ears so they know those are the ones to shoot and then uh and then the sows i i think they end up shooting those especially now but I thought it was really weird that they were catching hogs and not going out and shooting hogs. Well, and, so, uh, so, so the reason they castrate them, um, and, the, and the, so if you guys go on the internet, you'll see people will kill these monster hogzilla, like Google hogzilla on YouTube, where they'll have these like, you know, six, seven, 800 pound hogs they'll go out and kill. What they do is they catch the hog and they castrate them and then they set them back. And when they castrate them, they explode to these big sizes. So it's pretty rare when you see those monster hogs that they actually have their testicles. And I know because I've killed a shit ton of hogs out here in Texas. But uh, whenever you see those big hogs, like that's the one thing you look for. Like normally they've been cut and uh, they end up growing real big. Crazy. Yeah, that so that's, that's how I get bigger. Yeah so, then, <laughs> yeah. so then that's how they get these. So what they'll do is they go out and they castrate them and then they come back and they hunt them and they get these big trophy hogs. Yeah. So, and I'm but, sure they eat better. Yeah. They've got to be way better. Yeah, no, I don't like eating the boars. Uh, like, if anything, we'll eat the little ones. Um, you know, my buddy used to catch the little ones and skin them and then put them on a roaster. And uh, But the big ones, uh, one year, I like, when we would hunt pigs in California, they were pretty clean, and I didn't mind cleaning them. The first one I cleaned here in Texas, I was like, I'll never do this again. I wrapped it up, 
in a trash bag and uh, took it to the processor and had it turned into dog food. I'm like, well, I'm not going to eat these things. So, right. and, and now yeah. I just direct, like, uh, I, I killed so many. I got to the point where I just stopped taking pictures on Instagram. I'd be like, oh, I killed one to the point where I was like, Ugh. So, so I've been <laughs> trying to Google this. The, the, the concept y'all were talking about where the trail was challenging and they outbuilt the trail with these trucks and then the competition went away. So that is, uh, it's called the fun theory and that we need this challenge. We need to figure this out. That's why we keep coming back for more. And then this is why Superman is not like the not the world's most popular superhero because he's un, unbeatable. There's always a solution, always something. And he's always triumphant because he's, you know, not meant for this world. So the reason that thing went up is like it wasn't fun anymore because there's no more challenge. You've conquered it. And then, OK, let's let's try to handicap and limit ourselves so we can actually feel competitive and make this fun. Well, I mean, when, uh, when, when you're out on the trail and a dude pulls up in something that's like slightly modified on leaf springs and this, and like, is able to put, put the truck in some pretty interesting places and get it out. Like seeing those dudes pull up in those flat fender willies on leaf springs. <laughs> and like, I mean, these dudes are putting these like, like, you know, forties, fifties, flat fender willies on 35s with leaf springs and this, and these dudes are getting those things in and out of places that you're like, holy shit, dude, like that thing is so capable. With like little, like probably 150 horsepower motors. I oh, mean, they're probably more like 75 yeah. horsepower motors. <laughs> yeah, like you put any four cylinder in those things, yeah. and and they're they're just incredible. Like they're little like goats. And, uh, yeah, and the I, idea I think of handicapping yourself is is a good one. That that's where you end up with. Well, and there's a whole lot of other things with cost controls and trying to keep things where it's achievable. But that's where the rules come from in desert racing. Um, it's where the rules come from really in any sort of competition is, you know, is you either make the challenge way greater, which is, you know, the Baja 1000, the guys that are winning that in unlimited vehicles with unlimited budgets are still conquering an amazing thing. Um, you know, that's where the King of the Hammers stuff, the, that ultra four endurance racing comes in. Um, that's where the challenge is that much greater. And then you, know, you talk about the guys with the flat fenders on the trails that's that's actually just putting a handicap in and going out and doing a thing that's moderately hard with a handicapped vehicle and having a great time doing it there's a uh, uh, out in moab uh they have this deal i think it's called uh four by four adventure um like the basically you can catch a ride in these purpose-built rigs that ord's oh, put together four by four tours yeah, yeah extreme four by four tours so, and they, they built these things like they're, they're, I think they're square bodies and they're they, suburbans. yeah, they're suburbans and they built these like seats on them so they can take numerous people and they take them through all the stuff. And, uh, it's pretty hilarious to let people see it. But, um, the best part is, is they have a tow rig, uh, called the camel toe, which I think is the perfect name for that <laughs> thing. Uh, but it is a square body. Yeah, that's it. It's a square body with a, uh, um, it's got a service bed on it. And, uh, I think it's, uh, it's got coilovers and bypasses up front and leafs in the rear, but dude, they huck this, uh, tow truck. Like I've never seen, like it, it's yeah. like, like there'll be pictures of the dude launching oh, it like 10 yeah. feet in the air. This is awesome. <laughs> oh dude. It is it to me. Uh, it is the coolest thing when you have like, so what I'm a huge fan of is uh purpose-built rigs that actually do what they say they're going to do and do it with like an unamountable or like an un amazing like 
bit of style and just hackness where you're like like power athlete training program yeah exactly (laughs) it's gotta it's gotta have edge it's gotta have a lot of different stuff in it but man the first time i saw that thing and like i follow him on instagram and like dude seeing how hacked and more importantly how they use it i mean the dude pulls people out all day long which i can't imagine how expensive is to get pulled out uh if if you get stuck at at moab and you got to call the camel toe what does that run you it's got to be 150 200 bucks an hour I think it probably is. Yeah, I I haven't been exposed to the fee structure on that. <laughs> so I actually sold Dave that truck. Yeah, uh, it briefly passed through our possession, and uh, he came up and actually started it up, drove it on the trailer, and and went from there. But yeah, things like the you know when the hood scoop is an old air conditioner lid in. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I mean you he's know, got uh, uh dude, it's got tech screws holding the 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 deal together. It's like I love purpose built things, man. When you show up and you see it, and what's cool is uh, you know, like when you have these different events, like um, you know, whether it be Blazer Bash or uh, um, what's the other big one that's coming uh, up? Full size invasion. Yeah, full size invasion, and then they're going to have ones called Rocktober down here at Kissimmee Rocks. So the guys from Full Size Invasion kind of putting these events on. You never know what's going to show up. And every time you get to see it, like, and, um, you know, we've been obviously stuck building and doing all this other stuff that's prevented us from going out. But I, whenever I catch it on Instagram, I'm always so stoked to see what people do and like how people have like tried to like, not necessarily push the bar up, but are doing really cool stuff. Like I saw that guy do a version of your convertible truck, but he did it in a crew cab on a suburban frame. Right. Yeah. And that thing, that that thing was nice. Yeah. And super flattering when people end up essentially, I mean, and I don't think the guy's shy about it. He basically copied our cousin Willard truck because it's cool and it works. And, and that's, it feels pretty good that people think it's that cool to, to do that. But yeah, it is. And that's something the, the entire automotive world is there with, uh, with doing unique things and the, the technology and the, the fabrication skills and abilities to, to really create weird stuff. I I found stumbled across on the gram some dude had built uh you talk about a tube coffin. I mean, this was the street version. The guy's like laying down in this thing with a twin turbo LS, you know, strapped in behind him. And the the whole car wouldn't come up to to most people's hips. It didn't look like it was over three feet tall. He and built the just, uh uh the um it was from Fast and Furious. Do you remember uh Jason Statham's car? Where they were launching those people, the ramp cars in Fast and Furious. Which number? The one that was in the UK with the Rock, the first one with the Rock, where he was in that big like monster truck, and Jason Statham was driving in that thing. But it was Jason Statham's brother. Was Gina Carano in this one? Yes, the very first one. (laughs) Well, they were in the UK, and he had these ramp cars, which were basically like Formula One cars, and they were like shooting these dudes. Basically, the dude built the ramp car, but he forgot to put the ramp on it. And so he's in this like twin, and I know exactly what you're talking about. He's in this twin turbo thing where he's pretty much laying down. The, the car is probably no higher than 40 inches. And the thing was on, I, I think he has a air suspension on it. So he could drop it on the ground and raise it up. And the dude's basically cruising around on the street in this thing where like one, nobody can see. I mean, you're looking at exhaust pipes. Oh, this was fast six. Fast six. That's yeah. I bowed out. So I, like I, uh, um, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate to be friends with like uh, Joel from overkill racing. And then my buddy, Will, um, who's up in Utah, who's probably, I mean, the best welder I've ever seen. I mean, but that's saying a lot seeing is that Joel and those guys are incredible. 
but um you know to be around and, and have friends that are building stuff like uh you know montez who works for you know uh herbs racing and these guys that are building like the most cool shit on the planet and you see it and you're like i know how long it took me to do this and these guys are doing shit that's like like i i will just sent me a video of this dude that does um he welds titanium exhaust for porsches full titanium welding and like okay. the, the setup to weld titanium to tig weld all that and like it looks like a machine does it it's so perfect and then he turns up the heat to change the colors and it's hitting with the torch because they want it to i mean like uh, like my fucking head exploded yeah and it's pretty cool that we have a world where there's this much expression and it uh it people can build whatever whatever they want you know and it's there's so much creative cool stuff coming out of it the on the off-road side it's i think it's a little greater because and i've had this thought before it'd be cool to have a fast car but then i think what am i going to do with a fast car you know the street car you're any time that you touch its capabilities it's illegal it's just just the way it is unless you you take it to tracks and of course, in Western Colorado, we're a little short on tracks. And even at that, do you actually get to test out the car? But in the off-road world, it's a, a whole different story. And that's where I think there's uh, there's a little bit different level of pushing the boundaries and coming up with unique solutions for things. Because the, uh, well, back to your point, Tex, is the, the bar can be that much higher. The challenge can be that much greater. Because there, there's only so many things you can do with asphalt. You know, you got four tires, you're, well, maybe you don't have four tires, but you're applying horsepower to asphalt. It's going to be flat. It's not going to have a lot of contour, but you start throwing in the Z-axis and all of the different surfaces that we can play on. <clears throat> and it turns into a whole different story. You know, the challenge level's exponentially higher. Or like, um, um, was it like Pikes Peak? I don't know if you've ever seen Pikes Peak. Is that but, a movie? Uh, no, it's a it's a race in I think it's in Washington. Uh, they start at the <laughs> no, bottom. Colorado. Yeah, it's in Colorado. That's right. It's here. Yep, um, you start at the bottom and you race to the top as fast as you can. And there's different classes and whatnot. And uh, one one of the best is uh, Old Smokey. This guy, like, uh, what is it? It's got to be a four, a forty nine or a fifty Chevy or no, no, it's a Ford. I think it's it's a, it's a Ford truck. Yeah, it's a Ford truck uh rat rod kind of and i hate the term rat rod it's just un- i think like, it is it chuckles garage yeah chuckles garage who's in yeah. santa rosa california and he went in there and built this like it's like a 2000 horsepower diesel motor and it's the fastest it basically wins pike peaks or, or it has won numerous times with this incredible thing called old smoky and then uh i think last year he just basically yard sailed it and put it off the wall and just like he put it over the edge yeah put it over the edge and like you know there's no guardrails and you race up and on, it's like on purpose like a no i mean send off or no no like trying these dudes are trying to get oh, up there as fast as they the can yeah oh. <clears throat> oh and it's like if you go off you're either dying or, or wrecking your car and he wrecked it and these guys are just racing to the top i mean so what's so cool about you know whether it be off-road or whatever the racing is uh there's so many different like niche things that people are building for that i love it i mean like the amount of uh like i think we give social media at least for me i give it a lot of shit because there's a uh, for some reason, Chris keeps sending me all these entrepreneurial cringe, you know. I just trying to inspire you. You know, Charles is sending me cringe stuff. But what I really dig is one, I want to see the welding and fabrication. And I want to see like what people are creating in their garage. Like you'll you'll see some dude in a one car garage create something where you're like, oh shit, that's incredible. And, right, uh, well, and that's that inspiring. Ideas. You know, when you watch a you know a parcel blazer, 
you know, and all the details that go into that, or the, the fact that it's made everything so accessible. You know, I, I brought up when I was a kid and, you know, really up into the, the early 2000s, I was, I was thirsty. I was looking for anything to do with desert racing because I, something appealed to it there, you know, to me out of that. But there was also, you know, as I started using my truck, I, I knew that the answers to what I wanted were, were out of that world because these guys are driving over rough terrain fast for long distances. And the only way that you had to find information was, well, going to events was, was really it. But you're scrounging up magazines and, you know, whatever kind of periodicals the, the different race organizations put out. And, and that was it. You have some pictures, fortunately, Off-Road Magazine. I don't know if you remember that one, but they covered tons of ridiculous show trucks. But the opposite side of it was they covered a lot of desert racing stuff. But that that was what I had to do. You know, I had a stack of magazines and you poured through it and you looked through the pictures and you, you know, you looked at the background and, you know, picked up every detail you could try to figure out what, what they were doing. And now that's in the palm of your hand for decades to go through and look at all this cool stuff. And it's, it's really launched all of this cool, all these cool things we're talking about because it's accessible. People can grab those things and build on them. It doesn't take, you know, a decade for somebody in Colorado to go to desert races and, and pick that up and bring it back. Well, and that's one of the things that, that actually helped start my business is there's a, a little bit of a, a desert racing background in our area because of a, a handful of people, one of them, a guy named Chris Overacker, that strange turn of fate is actually working at off-road design now, but he had a, a local fabrication shop and had gone to some desert races and was building these Jeeps to go out down and, and go race. Like I know they did the Mint 400 a couple of times. And so he's bringing all these little tidbits of stuff back in the late 80s you know, build these super cool Jeep poncho trucks with all this desert race technology that he had picked up because he went there and saw it and, you know, brought it back and was able to build this stuff. And, you know, and I saw it and, you know, kind of started building on things, but that, that pace of development was years. And now it's minutes that people can look at things, see cool things, do stuff that looks like I mean, you can build something that looks like Bryce Menzies trophy truck now because you can look at, you can find out what Mason's doing when they're building these trophy trucks. Yeah. No, my, uh, so, my buddy, Will, who ended up, he, um, he worked for a bunch of, uh, you know, trophy trucks. He, he built a uh, ultra fours. Um, he actually, uh, went out and looked at Mason and they were, they were trying to hire him, uh, you know, it's out in Lake Elsinore. And uh, he ended up taking a job out in Utah, uh, but he was like, you know, Mason's building by far the most insane trophy trucks. He goes, dude, he goes, their stuff is so far. I mean, with, uh, you know, the fact that they can build these things in SolidWorks and actually test them in the SolidWorks. So SolidWorks is like an online, um, is a, a computer CAD programmer. And they can actually build the entire truck down to the nut and bolt, all the geometry, everything, and then put it through a series of models to test it in. Uh, in the computer? In the computer. And then what they do is they hint, you know, like print, it blows it apart. And then they send all the partner, uh, like basically all the schematics out to somebody who laser cuts all the pieces and then they show up in containers. And then you basically build them with Legos. When I was at Joel from Overkill, that's what Joel does. He designs everything. He tests it. He does everything in CAD. He didn't have a bandsaw. He didn't have a grinder in his shop. He just, oh, I mean, wow. the shop was perfectly clean and he had had 
uh, bitching welders, shop tables, you know, uh, uh, jigs, the whole deal. And he just started pulling out parts out of these containers. And we just started basically assembling things and just tack, 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 weld, run a bead. And he's like, he's like, dude, the fabrication, the days of doing stuff in cardboard and what you're doing, he goes, man, that shit's like 20 years ago. And now he's got like two benders that are, I mean, like we're bending tubes. I'm like, you know, measuring this, like, what's the CR? How far are this? I mean, he's like, no, 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 dude. We designed everything to the point where even the cat, um, the SolidWorks is designing the tubing goes to this thing called a dragon, like a dragon bender. A tube. Yeah. Tube uh, cuts and bends all the tubes and puts them out. And you don't even have to bend a tube. It already does it because it's on the computer and it's perfect. All the notches are done. Like I left there and uh, there's very few times I've ever left anywhere and felt like a complete fucking piece of shit. And I felt like that as I left Joel's shop. I was like, I should just go burn all of my shit and fucking move You're here at Apprentice. learning how to do all that stuff and he's just clicking them out. Well, yeah, but I mean, the amount of time, I mean, first of all, he's also building like the most insane, like the, so like the monster trucks that you see on like the, uh, um, like the grave digger and all those things, like he builds like those trucks. Yeah, like the pro monster trucks. That's what he builts. Well, they blow them up every tournament. And, uh, dude, like seeing them bring in, so they had one of the frames in there and seeing the stretch fractures. So like, Think like tubes and metal and especially welds don't necessarily break from like static loads. They break from shock loads, which means like I'm doing 70. I go off a, off a, a jump and I land on my front and then it shock loads and that's how things explode. So when you're in the shop and you're testing stuff like Dukes of hazard, like static loads don't mean anything like structural, like, Hey, if you put something heavy, is it going to support? It's going to be this. But now all of a sudden you go 70 miles an hour and launch it off of a rock. Like that's st- that shock load is where shit explodes. Rock. Yeah. Or a rock. So, I mean, but like, that's where this stuff is going, but then you, you know, like, uh, and then you'll have like, like you mentioned, uh, Danny parcel, um, you know, building that blazer, you know, what he's not showing is the team of 11 or 12, uh, world-class TIG welders, fabricators that are designing this stuff in SolidWorks, cutting the pieces. And then they're just doing the modeling photos and it's completely clean garage. And, uh, you know, and then there's dudes that are like, and, and I know this cause the dude I sold the axle to had a blazer. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, people can do it like that Danny Parcels truck. And I'm like, first of all, that dude lives in Costa Mesa right around the corner from my shop. And uh, like the amount of dudes that he probably has brought over from like Earps and all these other world class places that are doing that. I'm like, he's just showing you guys like like what he's showing you ain't reality. Yeah, it's kind of the veneer. Yeah. But that you talk about all those manufacturing techniques and and just on the welding side of things. when. and I'm actually in the middle of this. So my youngest son is just back half his K30. I saw the pictures. And, there's a, right. uh, there's a lot going on there. It looked like spaghetti when I saw the picture. Yeah. He's, uh, he's basically mimicking our, our convertible truck bed on the back of his truck. And he busted out my old manual tube bender. So you start talking about, you know, computer controlled bending and laser notching and on, and he's not any well we have the notcher so he at least has that but um is not notching with a grinder but he's got the manual bender he's out there you know running the ratchet on the bender oh like, like a manual bender. not like a hydraulic no it's oh, a oh. manual bender nice. and it's a, a cool step back but you know he ends up with some fits you know that are weldable but it's not going to be gorgeous and that's where you talk about your laser tube processing stuff now, all of a sudden, when a computer fits your tube and, and cuts the coat for you, you have a perfect fitting joint every time. And it doesn't take decades of experience to create that with a flap disc and, you know, and a cutoff wheel. So 
it makes it to where that weld now all of a sudden has a 100% chance of being awesome because of the fit. It's just up to you to, to make it right. And you're, uh, it's just up to the game on everything, a whole other level. So the, uh, the 74 blazer we're building, um, the original seats, I never liked the original seats in the blazer cause they had too much pitch. They like sit at a real funky back angle. So we ordered PRP buckets, which PRP makes the best fucking seats. I have them in everything. I love them. And, um, the problem is, is the original brackets and the PRP seats don't mate well together. So we didn't realize that until we went to go bolt it in. So we ended up, uh, making plates that bolted into the stock location and then bent tubing an inch and a quarter. And, you know, basically made like a skeleton frame to bolt all the, uh, you know, the pet tabs for all the, um, uh, PRP seats. But like the amount of time that it got into in terms of like, you know, like building the tabs, finding the stock points, the bends were all fine. It was just figuring out the angle and the seat height in this. I had eight hours in just that seat. And then we had to figure out because the back seats out of Suburban and they're slightly different. So then using the original brackets, making new stuff. I mean, uh, like it would be nice to go draw that in a computer. But at the end of the day, like I ended up having two days, which kind of killed her a little bit on her productivity on finishing this thing. But I had two days in basically figuring out how to get the seats mounted which uh, I didn't in experience or uh, didn't encounter until we went to go bolt in the seats. I'm like, yeah, uh, PRP seats are probably standard. I didn't know that they were like, you know, 13 versus 17, you know, and then, uh, and then seeing the way that the previous dude did it with angle iron. I'm like, I'm not putting that shit in this truck. <laughs> right. So I mean, uh, that's the kind of stuff that eats them up, Yeah, but it gets it done. Right. <laughs> Well, it, so for your son's truck, I noticed, uh, he, he, so he back half it, he's running all tubing and he's going to do it like, uh, uh, like a straight up, you know, kind of free runner, just cut the back of it off and rebuild it all. Yeah. He, uh, well, he has some examples because my, my dad's done that several times with our, uh, our various project builds, you know, that I'll, I'll be up in the office working on something. He was down in the shop and, what are we going to do here? What are we going to do here? It's like, oh, let me finish this up. We'll come down and look at it. And then next thing you know, I go down to the shop and the back half of the truck is out in the driveway. It's like, okay, that now, now a decision has been made. This is what we're doing. So he's uh, linking in front and rear then. Uh, Riley is just doing the rear right now. Um, but he uh, basically, a lot of our stuff ends up back half and he's a little bit, uh, I don't want to say monkey see monkey do, but he's got a template that he knows works and is just kind of following it. So yeah, he cut the the frame off behind the cab. It's uh, I think two by four rectangular tube for the, the frame there and, and then building on. Um, you talk about early days of coilovers. So by the time this comes out, it will be after his birthday and he will have gotten them for his birthday, but he, uh, he's using the coilovers off of the back of my blazer that I got in 2001 when we built it up for top truck challenge. It's an old set of King coilovers that they actually don't build anything like it anymore because they're smooth body shocks with the threaded sleeve. It's, you know, it's old stuff that he, he thinks is super cool because it's been around so long and it still works fine. It's, it's all good, but uh, yeah, the things are 21 years, 22 years old now. No, I mean, uh, dude, uh, I am because I'm, I, so there's two things that are universal in all my trucks is, uh, Kings and Walker Evans. So I run Walker, uh, Walker Evans beadlocks just because I remember as a kid seeing the off-road stuff. And like, for me, Walker Evans stuff was always the coolest and he was like the coolest cat. So I always run Walker Evans beadlocks and then Kings cause you know, that's like a Southern California thing, but it's like, 
you know, to the point where in Southern California, if you see like box shocks, like, Ooh, were they out of the Kings? You know? And it's, I don't know why it's just <laughs> such a, a funny, funny piece, but, um, no, man, that's, uh, uh, it's incredible. But, uh, you guys also have another thing you do, like, um, explain a little bit on the, uh, ultimate adventures. Cause, uh, I mean, that's another thing I've followed for years. Right. Yeah. Those are the coolest thing about those trips is they have forced us to go four wheeling in places that honestly, I would probably never go just because it's so far away. And we really have really good here. We don't have to really drive very far to go four-wheeling out of Western Colorado and have really good stuff. Um, if I was going to drive 15 hours or 13 hours to go somewhere, I can end up in Johnson Valley or at the Rubicon. I'm not going to drive past Kansas to, to go do that really on my own. And, and we've ended up nearly in the corners of the country. I mean, we've wheeled, actually, I guess we have, we've wheeled Washington, Maine, Florida, and California. And, and it's been super cool seeing all the different places, seeing the environment. It gives us an idea of what, what everybody has to, to work with in their local area. Yeah, I, good example, after being up in the Northeast, there, I don't think there's a straight road until you get maybe past west of Ohio, maybe is where they start building straight roads. And everything up there is little twisty two-lane stuff, you know, winding around farm buildings and as I look at, at valving people's shocks and setting up, up suspensions, it it helps to know that man, you're going to drive a lot of twisty asphalt when you're when you're back there. You're probably going to want a sway bar. You know, we need to kind of fudge the shocks a little bit that direction. And they also don't have long dirt roads. You know, that's something we take for granted. Being in the Western U.S. is you know, I can go out and run a weekend before last. We did 40, 50 miles each way of just rough graded gravel roads. And, and that doesn't exist in, in the Eastern part of the country. So it's really just given us a good understanding of what things are like. And then it's also a week of summer camp and four wheeling and camping and hanging out with buddies and having fun with trucks and you, know, you inevitably end up breaking things and fixing things. And some of it ends up being more of the stuff of legends than fun at the time, like the rainy year when we had our convertible truck out for the first time. So we're, give you guys kind of an idea. This is a, a K30 that we cut the top off of and had a, a very basic, just covering the top of the truck, uh, soft top on it. And so no doors, we have tube doors on it. So it's just open. Um, and, and that's what we were driving on the rainy year. And dealing with things that one of these legend things, we put a brand new windshield wiper motor in before we left. And before we even get to the trip, it starts raining. We flip on the wipers and the wipers go and stop. And we ended up trying to fix stuff. Finally, my dad gets out there, grabs the wiper arms and just rips them side to side until the gears are completely stripped out of the motor. And he came up with this plan. He took a piece of paracord and ran it around the wiper on one side, around through the cab, up through the roll cage corner on the other side and down to the other wiper. So it would lift the wipers when you pull it one way <laughs> and pull them down when you pull it the other way. Nice. So we're doing you know, this back and forth motion with this piece of paracord to operate the windshield wipers. 
And you, where else do you come up with stories like that? It took us two or three days to get to a parts store, get a motor and have the time to put it on. And so we drove around for three days, taking turns driving because the co-driver got tired of being the windshield wipers. <laughs> and, and that's what a lot of it's about. Yeah, no, and the the, the windshield uh, the windshield wipers as Tex knows on the square bodies are never been good. Like uh, I I got to the point where I would buy that Rainex stuff and start polishing the windshield mm-hmm. with the Rainex because it beads, and uh, that's the only way because the windshield wipers like you know you're like doing oh, this yeah. all the time. I and mean, then, as you know, you Te- can reach the windshield that helps. Tex, uh, <laughs> this is uh, holds this distinction. Uh, he's actually. And maybe you know somebody, or maybe one of the listeners, or somebody in the ORD family does. But I believe Tex might be the longest continuous daily driver of a six-two non-aspirated diesel K30, no heat, no AC. He drove it for what? Four years. Four years. Four years. Every single day as his only vehicle. Nice. I mean, uh, like, uh, like to the point where DJ and I were like taking bets. He's like, "There's no fucking way." So like we have, uh, I don't know if you know Garrett born for adventure. Um, yeah. So Garrett's, uh, um, you know, one of the, one of the crew from back in Costa Mesa and, uh, Garrett, like we, we've always believed that, uh, God protects drunks, babies and Garrett because, uh, Garrett would like jump in these CUCBs and drive them around America. And like, he would have a whole bunch of parts, not know what was wrong and just change the alternator. And it would some to somehow keep running. To the point where like we were like there's no fucking way and uh other than you i mean you maybe and even garrett broke at some point but four years strong man until that six two finally gave up the ghost yeah an unfortunate experience did well, me in. dude yeah but you i mean dude i don't know anybody like i i ran a six two i ran a six five i grenaded everything you made it but probably because i drive too fast whereas you on the other hand just like the mosey which is probably perfect for that six two yeah the purrs. I have some respect for that uh, that six two because my my eighty two Blazer came with one, and that was the family truck for until I started driving it in eighty nine, and then pretty shortly after I started driving it, we started building the three eighty three for it. But I had the luxury of overdrive, so that helps out pretty huge. But yeah, no, he was he was turbo four hundred on four fifty sixes and thirty seven. So wow, yeah. <laughs> It was, uh, dude, a great I, time. Uh, I love it. I, uh, like the fact that, uh, I'd see, I'd like, I could hear you clacking from at least a half a mile away because, uh, the clack of the six, two is more like a rod knock. So I'm like, Ooh, it sounds like a rod knock. Nope. That's a six, two. And when I hear that thing come clacking up, so now he has, a uh, a five cylinder Mercedes diesel three. from the seventies, three it, cylinder. I thought it was a five cylinder. No three. It's non-turbo. Oh, so it's just a diesel oh, 78. Yeah. 300. So he starts it yesterday and I could hear that soft clacky purr and I'm like seeing him pulling away. I'm like, it's just like a kitten purring. Yeah. Something about those things makes you kind of. Want them. Well, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a nostalgia. I mean, dude, I, so yeah, I had a six, two in my, uh, original military blazer. And then mm-hmm. the guy was selling a parts kit with a Sidewinder kit to put a turbo on it. So we ended up rigging it up and uh, um, ended up going and porting and doing a bunch of weird shit to the turbo. And I was able to end up getting like 16 pounds of boost out of it. Oh, wow. And that only lasted about two months. Uh, I was going to say the engine didn't like that. <laughs> new. It came apart at the seams. So then I went and bought a 6.5 and then we converted everything over in the 6.5. And uh, that thing ended up maybe, I think I might've gotten about 300 miles out of that before it just gave up the ghost too. And then that's when we started going to 12 valves. So I ran my course with six twos, six fives, and uh, 
Yeah. And now we just run 12 valves because if you're going to run I think diesel you motor. you printed the course. You didn't run the course. Well, no. <laughs> after you just blow everything up, you get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm, I'm you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different response. I think we talked about that the other day. So I wasn't going to put a 6.2 back in it. And then we just ended up finding 12 valves and they actually fit perfectly square by. Yeah, they're, well, the thing there is that the Dodge truck that they originally put that in, we, we jokingly call them the, the Dodge K30, you know, and of course the Ram chargers are, I feel like it's a pretty honorary title to be called the Dodge Blazer because they, they basically are. Um, but those trucks are so similar that uh, of course they fit in the K30 because they fit in the D30. Yeah. No, I mean, they're, yeah, they're great. I, I do love those motors. The, uh, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I really do enjoy, uh, like in big trucks, especially one tons, I like diesels and anything else. I like gas motors, uh, like, uh, like your little, uh, K30, you know, convertible. I know you guys shortened it. And I mean, it's got by maybe what about 125 on the wheelbase, 124, maybe it's like 115, 115. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's super short. That. And, uh, like I, uh, you know, for my, for the, the crawler we're building, the 12 valve made sense because it's a crew cab and. I think it's 140 and a half inches on my wheelbase. And so it just ended up working and, and we had an extra one. So, uh, but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited to get that thing done. I'm uh, like, and I know this has probably happened to you when you get, you start looking at the project so long, you're like either somebody just burn this thing to the ground or finish it because I'm tired of looking at it. Yeah. You have to get to a point where you, a lot of times it, it's best to, well, obviously the deadline is a thing, but then you get to a point where you just need to cut some corners and make a drive. And that's one of the biggest thing is you get the, a little bit of satisfaction out of it and it can kind of renew the enthusiasm and, and make it something usable because yeah, it, it, they can sit in the corner for so long that it's like, man, we just, and we've done that. The, the convertible was a, at least a two year build. We built it for an ultimate adventure, missed that one because of stuff that wasn't working. And we came back and it sat for several months before we we worked on it again and it was still a rush to get it ready and it still wasn't ready to go when we finally got it out on the trail it was just good enough and then you know over the course of the next year after that we kept tuning things in and now it's really really good but it kind of takes that process and at some point you got to just hook up the wire that it takes to make that engine run and and go drive it yeah whether oh, yeah, it's no. done or not whether it's you know, you have a seat, maybe it's a bucket, but you milk you crate. Yeah. Many, many times driven on a milk crate. So, so what's, uh, what's the future for ORD? I mean, obviously you guys have been in this market for so long. Um, I mean, and I mean, not, I mean, I'm not going to use the word camped out, but like you guys have really owned this off-road market in terms of square body mm -hmm. thing. And, uh, now that all of a sudden, you know, these trucks that you used to see parked on somebody's farm, you can go buy for $500 now or have exploded in value. Um, you know, I know y'all have caught that wave, but like, what are you guys really pushing for? Is it, uh, you know, better suspension? I mean, that seems to be like when I go to your site, I mean, it's, it's crossover steering suspension and just helping people, uh, really just experience their rig in a better place. Yeah. And that, that's one of the biggest things is, especially when guys are building a, a second, third or fourth vehicle, we want to, we want to make it to where it's the truck they want to drive. And, and not have excuses. And it, it gets so easy. My wife doesn't like riding in it because it's too bouncy. So when it's time to go get ice cream on a Sunday afternoon, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to take your nice truck. 
and and not take your hot rod because of that. Well, let's let's fix that. Let's make it drive nice. Let's make it ride nice and be something that that you want to take out. You know, we don't want to hear. You know, and, and we don't mess with the AC and the climate control stuff, but the fact that all that's there, oh, it's 95 degrees today. We don't want to take this truck once again to go get ice cream or we're going out to the lake. We're going paddle boarding or whatever. You know, we'll take the other truck because it's got AC. Well, let, let's fix that. Let's make the square body, you know, whatever it is. Let's make that the truck you want to drive. And, oh, you know, we got to go down the interstate, you know, to, to get to wherever we're going and our truck with a turbo 400 back to McWilkins problem is, uh, you know, kind of sucks to drive on the interstate for a long ways. Well, drop in a modern engine and an overdrive tranny and make this thing to where it's the vehicle that you've put all this work into it. You know, there's heart and soul poured into the project. You got to make sure that all of the things are done to where it's something that you want to use and don't have excuses for it. And that's been one of the biggest things in the resto mod market is, is that, and we're uh, we just keep making things better. You know, we're we're pushing on our suspension stuff to take it to a, a more bolt-on, and it'll never be bolt-on, but to get a level past what you've been doing, where is something that somebody with less fabrication skill, you're still going to have to weld. You know, brackets get welded to axles. There's no way around that. But get it to where it's something that's less intensive to install. Um, backing things out, you know, in your case, we're building a, a rock crawler with minimum ride height, maximum wheel travel. And when you start jamming all that stuff together, you, uh, you have some, some work cut out in cycling and checking everything. Well, you can put a four inch lift and have eight or 10 inches of wheel travel on a hot rod truck and have something that's a lot easier to put on. So we're starting to kind of back out of all of the stuff that we've done in the, the more hardcore off-road world and, and make it a little bit more friendly for installation, um, you know, and realize that not everybody needs what we've done in our more serious off-road rigs. Um, and, and there's room, we have a, I could probably finish a career in making square bodies work better and, and continuing to build parts for those. And then I also have this, uh, I call it hashtag IFS curious. Um, I have this fascination after playing around in the, in the high-end desert world for making IFS trucks work and, and figuring out how to fit those into different kind of niches in, uh, in how people use their trucks. And that's where the kind of the camping world comes in is, is starting to work some of that stuff out. And oh, yeah. no, I agree with you on the IFS stuff. I mean, we've been uh, like, I went out and I looked at, I think it was like an 03, 06, 07 frame out of a 2500 or a Chevy and was like, we were kind of looking at it and being like, God, I wonder if uh, I could cut the, you know, basically cut the front half off, take the front clip and basically work that into a blazer frame and do an IFS blazer. I mean, so like you start kind of going out there and you're, and you're doing measurements and you're like, holy shit, dude, this would fit. I would just have to move some cab mounts and this would, you know, go with the deal. But I really think, uh, one, I think that like a bolt-on IFS A-arm kit for a square body, I'm always been amazed because I remember back in the day, God, who made one? Um, they used to make one for two-wheel drive. Uh, I remember somebody had an A-arm kit yeah. that could bolt on, and I always thought, man, that would be super cool. 
And then the other one is, is, uh, you know, being able to figure out how to bolt just super duty axles in with, with, uh, with a coil. I mean, those are already set up. I mean, people are already selling the kits and that, and it's, it feels like, like that type of stuff is, uh, you know, where somebody can relatively, you know, do it quickly without a ton of fabrication. Yeah. As, as these trucks age, the, the axles are becoming less and less common. And one of the things we've seen that is really nice is there is starting to be a little bit of a pull away from having to put a Dana 60 in everything. And people see that, you know, in their resto mod truck, you can run a Dana 44 or a 10 bolt and it will work. So there's been a, I think that's dropped the demand for the sixties by some minuscule amount that doesn't make a difference, but you're right. The, the super duty axles are the, the next step for anybody that's running a, a solid axle truck. And we've, we have one at the, at the old shop, the machine shop that, uh, that we're going to start working with, but, and that brings up, we we just moved the shop to a new facility in rifle and we're working on getting the entire business kind of, uh, centered there. Our machine shop is still near Carbondale, but it gives us so much more room to, to work on everything. We've got at least double the building space we had before and room to, well, the place is 35 acres and about 25 of it's a, a mountain, but there's uh, there's plenty of usable space there to be able to get everything really moving forward. So we've, uh, it's been a challenge. This, this year's brought some suck for, uh, for moving challenges. And you know, we started off, we didn't have phones for four days when we moved because phone companies are what they are. But, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of getting the wheels back on things now and, and starting to really push forward and just keep basically doing the same thing, identifying problems and making stuff better. And then also another little one, uh, actually, uh, Stephen follows one of our training programs. Lean Enable. Yeah. Saw your name pop up. Yeah. I, uh, when we moved, I actually just listened to, uh, Leo Rosa's deal, you know, and his introduction into the the fitness world being CrossFit, I was kind of the same way, you know, after high school sports and working through, you know, doing college, just basically just playing intramural stuff in college. And then, you know, essentially my fitness plan was mountains, you know, through my rest of my twenties and thirties. And, you know, it got late thirties and CrossFit looked interesting. So I, uh, I jumped in there and ended up in more of a, Fortunately, I think more of a strength and conditioning was actually the, the last gym that I was I was working out at. They had ditched the CrossFit name, and it was Defiant Strength and Conditioning. So it kind of backed out of a, a little bit of the silliness, or most of it probably. Um, and that's one of the things I'm trying to for myself figure out the the new groove. You know, jumped into Lean and Able because I don't have much of a, a gym set up here at the house we're figuring out where everything lands at the shop and, and might be able to get something in there now um, but the uh the group side of things is pretty powerful and that's where i think continuing to franchise the the power athlete model could be a, a good thing and and get it to where it, basically one of the things i liked about crossfit is i show up at seven o'clock in the morning I walk in the door and do what they tell me. And that's, and that's it. I don't think about it. I don't program it. I don't, you know, other than having to deal with 
injuries, you know, because I have dirt bikes and all that stuff going on. But, you know, other than working around that kind of stuff and you've got good coaches to, to help with that, um, that's a pretty easy model. And I feel like it's something that uh, I know it's a, a whole different level reaching even toward CrossFit from where Power Athlete is. But uh, being able to have a small group get together and and have the programming in front of them, and it would really wouldn't even have to have a coach. You know, if I had another five dudes here to have for training partners, and you know, and have some sort of a gym space. That would be, it would be pretty awesome. Well, so, we can build that. I mean, I, I'm fairly decent pouring some concrete and uh, you sound like you got enough fab <laughs> stuff. We can probably figure it out. Right. Well, and that's, uh, like I say, having, there was some power in having a space that wasn't mine, having, you know, and just showing up, doing what I'm told and then going home and having, uh, you know, having some community because that is one of the things and it's probably more common with, uh, I guess maybe it's the work from home. There's a, there's a whole lot of people kind of bringing themselves more in rather than outward. But in my case, all of my friends, all of everything that I do is, is over the phone. It's outside of, of where I am. And despite growing up here, you know, and I have connections with buddies and everything here and, you know, local family and all, it isn't centered here. And, and that's one of the things the, uh, the group fitness side really brought was, was getting together with people every day with local people, people that you actually see are here and, and, and have a chance for some actual fellowship with live human beings. And, uh, and I don't know, like I say, I feel like there's probably more need for that than ever because people end up being able to dive into electronics for their social connection very easily. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, um, uh, you know, like uh, it, it always happens around sport. Like we're real lucky um, next door to where Power Athlete is, where we live, is um, Kathy's Barn, uh, BK Riding School. So uh, like, you know, 300 kids show up and ride horses and there's parents and this. And so, I mean, there's a huge community for it. Uh, my one daughter rides, my wife actually rides. So they're kind of like within this barn community. My other daughter does not. And so we have to find other sports for her because all like the friends that Kelly has, and then my daughter, Jamie, does, who doesn't ride. So like we did uh, swimming and um, like there's some other sports. So I, I took her up to a, a buddy of mine just opened a jujitsu school uh, up in a uh, little North Austin. So I took her up there yesterday and she's got her first, uh, her first class coming up. And so like there's a community with that and she plays basketball. And so because they go to a private school, it's pretty small. Uh, like, and the kids kind of come from all the places. And since we live out kind of in the middle of nowhere, what used to be somewhat nowhere, like finding different communities for things. And I've always said, man, when I first came to CrossFit, um, I think like, at least for us, uh, what people probably used church for many years ago, is kind of what CrossFit became because we would show up on whether it be a Saturday, Sunday morning, and we would always train with all these people. And then we'd always, you know, either go out to lunch and there was a huge social component with that. And, um, you know, I always thought that fitness and more importantly, things like CrossFit gyms gave people a high sense of community that maybe they don't get in the same way, maybe in Southern California, because maybe religion wasn't as important. I mean, people here in Texas go to church a lot more than we went to in California. So but I, I definitely agree with you. Like you want to show up and bang some weights and then, you know, hang out and have a laugh with your friends. Um, you know, and it'd probably be helpful too, if they could work on trucks as well. 
yeah, that's, you know? uh, that's always a nice bonus. Yeah. We, we always say, if you want to get friends, you uh, get a lift in a, in a trailer, I think is the joke that we always talk about. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you got a lift in a trailer, you're going to have a lot of friends. Yep. Exactly. So, so yeah, I'm kind of working my way through figuring out what the, the fitness world looks like for me going forward. I'm after working out alone for a while, it's probably not going to be that long-term. Um, but as we get the wheels under the shop and, and keep moving, uh, moving that direction, I'll, I'll figure something out. So what about your son? Uh, he does dirt, uh, dirt bike racing is what he was doing. Yeah. So Jackson basically pulled back from the, the hardcore dirt bike world. He, uh, he got to a point that my brother and I actually hit in the, in the ultra four racing world back in 2013, where it went from being fun and something that, that you do that's challenging, but it was going to become a job. And, uh, and Jackson got to that point where he, uh, he dabbled in, you know, writing for training and, and it wasn't fun. And then we looked at the trajectory, trajectory of what happens where do things go when you're when you're becoming a really good dirt bike rider you know in the hard enduro world well there is no supercross series you know and those guys you, you know um fought you know they fight super hard to get into that you know and those are the rock stars of, of that world the the rock stars of of the hard enduro world have day jobs you know the Cody Webb actually lives here in Colorado and got an engineering degree. Just, well, it's been a few years now. He's a mechanical engineer. Um, so I, I think Jackson kind of looked at that and decided that uh, dirt bikes were going to be fun for him and he didn't want to ruin that. And he's now busting ass working, buying and selling trucks and, uh, and saving money trying to buy a house, has a, a pretty serious girlfriend that's also into trucks. So Nice. We're, uh, you know, kind of moving on in life there, but who, well, and that, uh, who, up who, do we that have on, who, who do we have on the podcast? Weston. Yeah. Weston Pike. Yeah. Pike. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. I listened to that one and, and I, I suspected that that was a grueling world getting into the, the super high end arena bike circuits of various sorts, you know, supercross, motocross, but yeah, that, he definitely brought some uh, some light to how hard that really is in that world, and okay. and that top just doesn't exist in the hard enduro world. Mm. Uh, there's no spectators in the backwoods, and and social media and video and uh, being able to put all that stuff together has made it more televisable and more accessible to fans than ever. But you still can't put a hundred thousand people in a stadium and watch guys go jump dirt bikes out in the woods. So that yeah, one no, uh, is interesting. I mean, just the fact that, uh, I mean, dude, like I had no concept of like when he was explaining how he crashed. And then like when I looked at the pictures that he pretty much landed on his back and the dude landed on top of him and shattered his helmet and destroyed his face. I was like, oh shit. Like how did this dude survive? I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, uh, but I mean, they had uh, emergency medical to get him somewhere. I mean, you're out in the middle of the back roads and something bad mm -hmm. happens. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. Nothing to support. Yeah, that's where any of the, the backcountry stuff, it's why, why desert racing hasn't reached the pinnacle of other motorsports is because it, it's not accessible. And it, one of the things is there's, there's asphalt everywhere. 
uh, no matter what part of the country you're in, there's asphalt there. People can identify with that. Desert racing really has to happen in a desert. Uh, that's kind of by definition. And you have to have the distances, you have to have the, the accessibility of that terrain. But, but that is definitely something when, when you're out in the middle of that, when things go sideways, you've got to be able to take care of yourself. Because that's, uh, it could be a while before somebody comes to get you, even with all of our safety gear. You know, we have transponders on the cars that, that go off and if something goes wrong, um, you know, I mean, they'll, we've taken big G hits in the car and, and they come on and ask if you're okay. Um, they see if when you stop and, you know, and check in. So there's, uh, there's been great advances in safety, but at the end of all of that, you're still, you know, we can be a hundred miles from pavement in, in the Baja. And there just isn't a way, you know, you do that at night, you're not getting aircraft and, uh, Things can go sideways. It's it is different. Oh yeah, no. Um, our neighbor uh, Jesse James, he uh, I think he took his his trophy truck to the mint, and mm-hmm. uh, he dude he yard sailed it in like the first sixty miles, and like wrecked the thing. And uh, I mean, he had a ton of time. I mean, I saw that truck; he had a lot of work in it, right. and uh, basically just wadded it up. And now you got to go build another. So I mean, you know, and he was all excited. Hey, I'm going to get out there. We're going to you know we're going to mm-hmm. fucking kill it. I got a new helmet. I got new suit. You know, we got wrapped the truck. We're going out there. And fucking wads it up in the first 60 and fucking basically just, you got to throw away a million dollar truck. Yeah. I mean, and you got to have the deep top, the deep pockets to be able to say, fuck it, let's go build another one and do it again, which, you know, puts you in a very specific, very specific market, which. Oh, yeah. Yep. But that's been, uh, basically, that's been the kind of the problem with these outdoor sports overall. And it's kind of across the board with any outdoor sport, you know, well, I mean, you, you were in a stadium sport that, that is a place where as an athlete, you can go in that sport, but you start taking, uh, I don't know, trail running. You know, why isn't trail running bigger? It has probably the greatest history of, of athletic development of, of anything. I mean, the very first things that we did were start running trails. You know, that's what, that's the basic thing that most, most basic sport that there can be for humans and it isn't something that's televised. You don't watch it on TV. People don't follow it. And, and a lot of it is just because it's inaccessible. Do, do you remember um, years ago on ESPN, there was that, like, uh, they did that adventure racing where they would yeah. have those, like, different teams. And I was individuals. And they would, like, have to cross rivers and run through mountains. And they would have all that. And I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I was, think there's been various flavors over the years, but I, I think it was like the great adventure or maybe it was the, uh, Might have been the yeah, greatest like, race, maybe? yeah, or the greatest race. So back in the eighties and, uh, I only know this cause we would do like, we, we would religiously watch it once a year. Uh, but they would have these, like, they would take these guys in the middle of nowhere and they would set up cameras and then they had courses and they like, I remember these dudes are like waiting across rivers, running up peaks. And they basically found a way to televise this whole thing. And it was by far the coolest thing ever. And, uh, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that since. And I always, and I never could figure out why. Right. Well, and I don't know if people don't identify with it or if, you know, if basically we've gotten so far from running on trails that people don't, don't see that in themselves and can't identify with it. Or if it, uh, if it was just hard to bring people actually into it, but that, uh, it seems like there would be more, more for that, but 
I, well, I don't know. Maybe in the maybe the team sports have risen to the top because it's it's more interesting being on a team than it is competing as an individual. Well, I'll tell you, um, Motor Trend uh, doesn't know their audience at all, uh, and I think is ass backwards the fact that they cancel Dirt every day, which uh, I like. I religiously watch, and the fact like that they basically can that show. I mean. Like I can't imagine a worse fuck up by a, a or a um, uh, like an outlet like Motor Trend to not know their audience to actually cancel. For those of you guys know, Dirt Every Day was a show on Motor Trend, which uh, if you're into off road trucks and weird shit, like this was the show to watch. And yeah, uh, we're just having fun building things. Yeah, you know, for for off road stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, uh, yeah, and I mean, and, and I know you're, you're good friends with those guys, but uh, I mean, yeah. now they're just going to push it to YouTube. Which I mean, it's probably going to be a better show, better content, and you know, I'll probably get paid more. But to actually have something like Dirt Every Day on, you know, some form of network cable, I guess you could say, you know, whatever channel, and then to cancel that just goes to show how far. I mean, like uh, I, I'm sure you've been to SEMA. Uh, we went to SEMA oh, yeah. a couple of years ago, and I went actually a couple of times, and um, it's been blew my mind how far removed I am from like the stuff that people were building, I thought was fucking God awful. The amount of SEMA shit that I was like, I'd set all of this shit on fire and like seeing that stuff and then realizing like, is it us or is it them? And then realizing that, you know, how far the market is. Right. Yeah, it is pretty broad. And that's where, yeah, there's a lot of those trucks that, well, I mean, the Bluetooth drive shafts that, that tells you right there. Yeah. The bro Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with it. They're building things that look cool. And that, doesn't have any appeal to me really there's uh it can look good after it functions and and it is a whole different market but there's a whole lot of people that buy things that look cool and it uh it isn't really my gig but they are out there it's crazy shiny stuff is some people like things because they are shiny when we were there um i uh i can't remember whose uh d30 it was but the one that was on the treps with the coilovers up front and then the spring under axle. And then I want to say they had maybe a L92 or an 8.1. Oh, that was, yeah, that was uh, Fred Williams truck. Yeah. Yeah. Fred. They, yeah. They, so they, Fred uh, Williams truck was yeah, at, uh, truck. yeah, that was at, um, SEMA when I was there and I got a chance. They, they okay. had it kind of like, a they kind of had it, uh, all stacked out. So I got a yeah. chance to kind of crawl underneath it and the fact that they were running portals and, you know, undersprung axle and coilovers up front and, I mean, it was super cool to see what they did. And that was a dirt every day episode. Yeah. And uh, Fred and I linked it up and did the engine swap and did the rear suspension. Yeah. I, I dude, I loved it. I, I was like, and then I, I saw it pop up for sale uh, uh-huh. somewhere in California. Somebody sent me the link and I was like, ah, I don't need another K30, but I really <laughs> want that K30. And, uh, but yeah, it looked good on those 42 inch traps, which I always thought looked good on everything. But yeah, man, oh, yeah. it was super cool. Yeah. Well, and the guy that, uh, that bought it has been wheeling it doing full-size invasion stuff. And, and he's one, you know, he's learning how to fabricate some, some basic things on it himself, which is pretty cool. And uh, so it, it's still riding around, but yeah. And that's the kind of thing, you know, that truck lived several lives through dirt every day. And, and man, when you see it, like you talk about seeing it at the SEMA show, when you walked up on that truck, it was clearly not the same as anything else that was there. It was, it, you just knew it when you walked in there because it was in the middle of the main hall. So you like walk down from, you know, looking at Ford 
and all of this other shiny car stuff around it. And there's the Alabama army truck. Yep. Alabama army truck. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I do. I, I followed that series, uh, in the magazines and to see it in person. Uh, it was cool. I mean, like the fact that they were running portals, which, you know, is uh, actually a gear reduction in the hub was super cool. I mean, the, the spring under, like there were some really neat touches on that thing that I was like, man, this is neat. Um, you know, and, and cool to see, but that's, I, I was excited to show up and see that. I wasn't excited to show up and see a F three fifty on, you know, fucking 24 inch 16 wides, you know, with Chrome wheels that, you know, probably cost more than my entire truck if they fucking curbed them. So, I mean, but it just goes to show that like, that's the market. And then actually seeing the people that are building these SEMA things, like the fabrication was dog shit. Like they're just like, it looked like a, you know, spider or like bird shit welds covered in powder coat and this and like, and, um, so it was, uh, it was extremely, the first time we went, man, I was extremely disappointed, but then all of a sudden you see some stuff that's just out of this fucking world. So yeah, Yeah, it can be, uh, you can walk by, well, I don't know if they had it the year you were there, but off and on over the years, they've had uh, the Baja 1000, uh, you know, scores kind of, they've done their qualifying during that week and then brought all the trucks there and had a bunch of trophy trucks on display. And so it is this huge dichotomy. You, you go through, walk, walk through a field of trophy trucks and see all this stuff that's pure function top of the line. I've, I've seen stuff there that I can't believe they left on the trucks. It's like super high end prototype kind of secret stuff you know, on, in one section and a hundred yards away are the road dozers that can't possibly, I mean, they, they drive on and off of a trailer yeah, and that's barely. about as good as it gets. Yep. Oh yeah. No, we saw it. I mean, it, uh, I remember they, they had all the welder ups up there, which, um, was, was really interesting in terms of like a steampunk kind of creativity, but like the, mm-hmm. the fact that they were like, Oh, we built this car in seven days and the thing had like 10,000 hand rivets in it. And like, I'm like looking at this and I'm like, dude, you built this thing in seven days. Like there's 10,000 rivets, like hand pounded, like steel (laughs) rivets or, uh, uh, iron rivets. And I'm like, okay, there's no, I'm like, okay, somebody must've riveted this over the course of like a year. Like there's no fucking way you built this in seven days. So there was like a lot of kind of bullshit with that. Um, but, uh, for the most part, um, the one cool thing we got to see, we got to see the original, um, how was it, uh, not the, uh, oh yeah, they had the orange block, the orange blossom special, uh, monster truck. And then they had the, uh, the original orange monster truck that had, you know, that was like the general Lee, but the monster truck version. Oh, okay. So they had that where it had like 27 different Chrome shocks on each wheel and that. And I remember seeing, right. you know, I, I probably had the hot wheels when I was a little kid. So to see it in person was huge. And then to see the orange blossom special and see like, so to see the vintage stuff was cool. Cause it was nostalgic and then, uh, that, but other than that, I, uh, and then I got to talk to the dudes from Weissman Transmission who I knew. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was neat to see like the fast setup and what they were doing with the fuel injection and that. So, I mean, it was cool with that. But, uh, man, I was not, I, like, there was just a lot of shit that I was like, this is crazy to me. But I mean, it, it goes back to the off road world. Like, like, what are you trying to do? I mean, you know, you're talking about uh, making square bodies in these trucks run better for people to go out and use them, not just make a bunch of shit that you bolt on that you can get at AutoZone. Yeah, exactly. At the end of it, you know, I want to be able to jump in. Well, actually have a blazer now for the first time in, in Congratulations. Well, a running blazer for the first time in a long time. And and we took it over to some some property that we have over in some different mountains. Um, you know, and that was 
40 miles of just dirt gravel roads and drove over there and turned around and came back and, and it was comfortable and neat and fun and you know, it was road nice. And, and that's, it was cool getting back into that to really connect that back, you know, in, in a, in a blazer again, because I haven't had anything like that. My blazer became a tube chassis in like 2001. So it, uh, so that was cool, but it, it's how I want for people to be able to use their truck. And like you say, it, it comes down to using it. It's actually doing stuff. It's well, not a static display. I'll tell you, as I've been putting together this 74, uh, I didn't realize one, the absolute dog shit construction, but more importantly, the amount of flex on the frame and the body, um, those torque boxes and the fact that there's not, I mean, like, like we were trying to get the roof on last night and, uh, you know, we basically, I, I didn't have it on the tires, still on the jack stands realized we couldn't get the roof up because the body was flexed out. So then now, you know, so we got it sit on there. I got to go put the tires on it and get it over to the rat people. But I'm hoping when I put the tires on it and it brings down, I can get the roof bolted in and the doors realigned and this. And I'm like, Oh my God, dude, these like convertible blazers, people love them, but God damn it. They're an absolute nightmare. There hasn't been a single thing that hasn't fought me on that truck. Yeah. They need some help. So we should probably talk about that blazer some more. Yeah, no, uh, um, it's a uh, 1974 K5 Blazer. Uh, we picked it up, uh, like we said, from that dude, wheeled it out. It's got three quarter ton axles out that were out of a 74 uh, truck that we picked up as a parts truck. So yeah, four, which is four, be kind four of tens. Cool there. Yeah, that period front axle. What, and this is where you get down to the little nitpicky things, but you have that big old bolt-on hub that was the, the actual locking hub that realizing that there's a lot of people that, don't get out and lock their hubs to do things. So that's the part that you get out and actually turn on the axle to lock the the wheel to the axle shaft to make it four wheel drive. And that 74, you know, early seventies version is kind of unique. So being able to put that 74 axle in the 74 blazer is, is actually a really cool touch. Yeah. Well, no, uh, we, uh, I had that, uh, the axle set kind of sat aside and then we got the truck. I'm like, Oh, this is perfect because I could send you the knuckle and have you machine it for crossover, which you mm -hmm. can't normally do on those, uh, early seventies blazer axles, which would also Dana Ford. Yep. So yeah, being able to start with that thing, you've got the original hub, the three quarter ton axles are nice. Just you get bigger brakes and, and all those things, but it, it's kind of a, you know, if somebody had done a three-quarter ton conversion in the in the early 80s on that when it was in its first life as an old truck, um, that's what it would look like. So so the guy we got it from bought it he actually out of California. He was in El Toro and it was a chase truck back in the, the late 80s for Baja. Um allegedly is what the guy told us. And then he bought it off of this dude who was like uh built trophy trucks in Orange County, and the guy was based out of El Toro. Uh, got a job as a firefighter here in Austin, brought the truck in, had it, put it in the garage. And then like an idiot fucking somehow, I think he went through a divorce, sold the axles and the wheels and the tires. And it sat on jack stands for 15 years until we resurrected it. But it still had the original top. So I took the top over to a boat maker or a, a guy that did fiberglass, redid the top. Uh, we did PRP seats. Uh, I line the tub. We fixed, uh, there was some rust, typical rust over the fenders, fixed that. Uh, we shot it in Rapco uh, strata blue, the semi-gloss. So we, uh, shot epoxy primer, shot up a buildable primer, sanded it, did everything, then shot a couple coats of the Rapco strata blue. And then I went through and line the, the tub. We also put down, um, um, not dynamat, kill mat, 
which is a sound deadener and then put carpets in it. So I, from stock interiors, got like a nice, actually plush carpet with a, with a backer on it. Uh, ended up using one of our steering wheels. We obviously stole all the parts off of our blazer, which was nice was that the guy actually in the box when we got it had NOS, uh, fenders in the box that were dated from like 86. That's so, perfect. so yeah, so we put original fenders fit perfect. Um, got all the grill. I actually had somehow squirreled away a 73 grill. So we got a new grill for, uh, we're able to put the original grill back in. The hood was fine. Uh, I got the, uh, we were able to pop the windshield out, put the original windshield back in, use the rubber. I stole the rope out of Texas truck. Um, <laughs> the small block that we had was actually a, a 355 that was in the suburban. That was a, a good Ridge block that somebody had rebuilt or that he, we had rebuilt. We got the motor, we got the verb from, so we put that in. Use the Turbo 400 out of Texas CUCB with the 208, which has got a you know better gear reduction and um, yeah. you know Tom Woods drive shafts. So got those hooked up, and then uh, obviously your Alcans and crossover steering, and uh, got everything all geared up. And then DJ did a new wiring harness. Um, Good. Yeah, I mean it's uh, we're able to use the original dash. I mean there's just a whole bunch of little things, but it's uh, yeah no I, I bolted the whole front end together, got the bumpers on it, and. Uh, it was nice to have that burb right next to it to steal all the pieces and all the weird stuff because it's got AC. So we robbed it, all the old AC stuff off of the burb, put that on, okay. cleaned it all. So I'm not going to have time to charge the AC, but it's on there if somebody wants to do it. And um, But yeah, it's going to be perfect. I mean, 410 axles, 37s running methods, and um, uh, I think we're running Toyo RTs on it, 37, 12 and a half, 8, 17s. And then got uh -huh. those bitching uh, methods on it, which I think methods are good on everything. So. And then we're taking it over the wrap. We're going to get the stripes put on it and all the sponsors. And then I got to probably come back and finish up the exhaust and a few little things. But uh, it's going to be cool, man. Uh, I, I know I've been sending you the, the pictures and the mocks and all that. It's, uh, it's neat to see like the vision and when I designed it and actually seeing it come together. So I'm pretty pumped. And hopefully, uh, you know, we get a whole bunch of people that want to buy it and raise a bunch of money for charity and, and help Wade's Army. Wade'sArmy.org. Wade'sArmy.org. So. Yeah, I mean, there's a piece of text in there with uh, his CUCB donating parts, and then obviously, you know, from the burb, and so it's good to know the white truck will live on parts of it. Yeah, there's so little, little parts. I, know, I that's going to be super cool having uh, somebody's going to get a really cool blazer out of it, and then you know, at the at the start of this project, we talked about doing this charity project, and and, and us. My business is at a point, you know, we're 25 years in now. Um, and it's at a point where we can pitch some parts for something like this and, and help make it super cool and, you know, it help with uh, kind of your guys' pet charity. And it's, it's neat being in that position and that it dovetails so nicely that, that what we have to give is something that you can take and magnify. And, and I know that it's going not only to a good cause, but effectively to that, you know, all those things really fed in for us. It's, uh, as you know, there are so many things that you can do charity wise that you end up a fraction of what you do, you know, what you put into it, whether it's actual, you know, just paying cash or parts or anything else that actually ends up doing any good. And that's one of the things that I, I liked about this project is, I know, like I say, not only are you taking the thing that we have to give, you're magnifying that, and then it'll it'll actually all go to a good cause. That's that's a good thing. Yeah, no, my uh, my biggest thing is I'd love to be able to try to get it 
to one of the, you know, definitely the full size invasion. So we're going to do the raffle and I'm getting them to push it out so we can at least bring it to Rocktober. Uh, I would uh-huh. love to try to bring it to Moab in, in a couple of weeks. I don't know if we're going to be able to like skin that, but it would be so cool to be able to show up and uh, be able to drive it around for a couple months, work out the kinks and actually bring it somewhere. And like, it'd be neat to get some cool shots and uh, actually get it a little bit of publicity. And who knows, maybe we get it on the cover of a magazine and which would just increase the value and the ability. And, and then also when we start doing the sweepstakes, get you guys to push it out. And uh, I mean, I know you guys got a lot of, a lot of loyal, you guys are kind of like power athlete in that way. You got a lot of loyal people that'll be stoked to, to see you guys on there. And also, you know, the fact that it is a sev- early seventies convertible blazer even makes it that much cooler. Oh yeah. No, it's a, it's going to be a great platform for achieving all of this. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped to see it running and we'll have to, uh, I hope you can figure out a way to get it up to Moab because that's, well, there's a couple of things there. One, we're coming up on a time of year where drag it to Moab, we can run it around on some cool trails that are not gnarly stuff. You know, that's something I have to throw in that disclaimer because everybody thinks when they go to Moab that, you know, they're just going to trash all their crap, but people go to Moab and have fun in Subarus. Sure. You can go, there's plenty of stuff to drive on that are just dirt roads that's scenic and go see cool stuff. Um, we'll, uh, we can get some cool pictures there and then take it back through the mountains and, and uh, just, I mean, there's so many places you can just pull off on the side of the road. And as we, you know, especially get more toward the middle of September, you start popping up fall colors and, you know, get some cool pictures up there and help, uh, you know, have some good ammo to really push this thing out. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm super excited. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm actually going to go up there and try to get worked on it right now. We're going to take it over the wrap. So I'm going to, Thank you for allowing us to steal two hours of your time, dude. Uh, I, I, and I know like you, man, I can talk trucks all day. So, uh, I'm sure, you know, we'll, we'll do more, but I look forward to meeting you in person, dude. And can't thank you yeah. more than enough for, uh, your support and everything that ORD's given us for the weight truck and, uh, and also the stewardship and the friendship, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, but definitely a good time. It's, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure that you're stealing two hours. <laughs> I think you might've been given some, <laughs> we'll, well, we'll call it that. It's, uh, it's fun to hang out and talk trucks with buddies. Cool. Well, look forward to hearing from you. And uh, thanks for tuning in another episode of Power Athlete Rate. Bye. 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 Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Head to powerathletehq.com backslash training to choose from a number of programs to meet your specific performance goals. And if you like to break a mental sweat too, visit academy.powerathletehq.com and become a real stakeholder in you or your athlete's success. Until next time, bye!